This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Mystery of Selmare by Hugh Irish. It's read by Connor Kay. It runs one hour, four minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Mystery of Silmare by Hugh Irish It was accidental, my meeting the Chapmans at Tampa. I had been doing Florida, as most everybody does at least once, had gone down the East Coast and on to Havana in a Key West packet. I was now on my way north, up the west side of the peninsula. I found that the real estate sellers of the east side of that incomparable sand drift haven't anything on those of the west side, if anybody should ask you. But the trip had all been different enough from selling farm machinery in Saskatchewan, which was my own speciality. And as I went down the hotel steps on the way to the railroad station, I carried, besides my travelling bag, an equally heavy regret that my week in Tampa was up. A hotel taxi was at the curb, and as I crossed the walk towards it, whom should I bump into but Esty Chapman and, as I had every reason to suppose, Estelle Morse. They had just come out of a shop, Chapman's arms laden with purchases, and were on the point of climbing into their car, parked in front of the store. I must have stood in opened-mouthed non-plus through a heartbeat or so when I recognised them. Then my amazement was swallowed up in our mutual greetings. Chapman put me right, in a bashful way, when I addressed Estelle as Mrs. Morse. Mrs. Chapman now, he stammered across his armful of parcels. They both laughed easily at my momentary funk. One risks a contretemps or two, losing oneself for years, as I had done in the Northwest. I had left Estelle happily married to Professor Morse, an event following close on our university association, and Chapman burning the midnight electricity trying to break into print. You'll have to come up to the house and hear the whole story, Chapman said, turning to the car to rid his arms of the parcels. Estelle nodded sweetly in confirmation. Everything Estelle did was done sweetly. But I was on my way to the station, man, I half objected. Chapman wouldn't listen to me. He waved me into the tonneau seat with Estelle while he sat with the driver, his big back squarely in front of me. Chapman was massive. He'd played centre on the football team in his last two years at college. Estelle had kept something of her old-time vivacity, but it seemed subdued, as though it might have run the gauntlet of no telling what repressive memories. She had, to my taste, more than ever of the brunette loveliness, yet she did not look just fit somehow and I noticed that Chapman helped her into the car as though she were an invalid. I couldn't chafe her, as I once would have done. There was some subtle quality in her manner 
that stopped me. We talked of the old days, but we did so a little pensively. The car traversed the city streets and its citrus-screened outskirts, coming to a halt at last beside a sandy plot bordered in the distance with scrub pines. In the midst of the plot stood the Chapman residence, bare and bleak, sands veranda, sands stoop, and even sands shade trees. It was just a great, plain, unrelieved cube, with no projections of any kind about it, save the cornices. I found everything lovely inside, though. Large, brightly lighted rooms. The lighting was really extraordinary, and the rich furnishings were of the best, and in taste. You'll have a nice place of this when you've had time to grow some trees, I said to Chapman that evening, as we sat outside at sunset smoking. We have all the trees we are likely to have, soon. There was an abstraction in the manner of his reply, which, I thought, presaged the story I knew he had to tell me. I had sensed his attempts to get a start on it all afternoon, and had wondered what there could be about it that was so deucedly hard to tell. But if he was at the door of the thing now, he was diverted again, for at the approach of the sudden dusk of Florida latitudes, he started up suddenly with a scared look and an exclamation that we must go to join Estelle. We found her in the music room, just seating herself at the piano. Something told me that if we had not come when we did, the instrument beneath her hands would have summoned us. A sense of queerness struck me the instant we entered the room. It was the lights, I think. All the electric bulbs in the room, and there were ten times too many, were beaming garishly. I suspected Chapman, or his wife, of an odd passion for light, light, and yet more light, as though gloom or shadow were a deadly gas that must be kept off. One of the maids was with Estelle when we entered. I noticed that, but she withdrew when we came in as though she had been there merely to keep her mistress from being alone. Estelle played for us until dinner was announced. After dinner, the three of us recalled old friends, tracing this or that one to his or her success or failure. We went over a little of Chapman's work. A good deal of it I had never seen, though it was now being published. I had been out of touch with most prints for years. Estelle left us at 10.30, avowedly to let us smoke without making her cough, but really, I knew quite well, to clear way for Chapman's discourses that seemed so hard for him to disclose. The thing he told me could not have been told with her present. That's certain. We went to Chapman's den. It was already bedtime, and Chapman made no false starts. Had Morse shown any signs of... of overstudy before you went west? He asked doubtfully, when we were settled in easy chairs. No. My answer was prompt, but, on his remaining silent, I reconsidered. That is, he always seemed intent on his work, when at work, but he was apparently able to forget it when away from it. So he was, once, Chapman agreed, but later on 
His intensity at his work grew on him, while he lost entirely his way of letting go of it when he knocked off. Finally, he developed a tendency to drag his infernal science into everything that came up in everyday life. That got to be devilish unpleasant for Estelle, and, as I seemed the only one who could fetch him out of it, even temporarily, they had me about as much as possible. It was Estelle's doing, but Morse wanted me too. I think he felt he was going agate mentally. His hobby eventually ran to botany, that is, to the phase of botany that considers its relation to biology in general. He delved into vegetable sentiency and vegetable consciousness. Can you imagine it? And even to vegetable mobility. He finally came to more than half believe that plants have not only feelings, but a kind of mentality, or at least consciousness. And at the last, he became next to noisy on the subject of chlorophyll and its powers. Chapman stopped and stared at the floor. I shook my head at what he had told me about Morse and wondered, meanwhile, how much of the story I was to be cheated out of by his intimate relation to it. When Morse's mother died, he resumed, she left him the old home place in Silmare on the northeast coast. He and Estelle used to spend their vacations there. It's a sleepy old town, but something of a summer resort for a few New York and Boston people who like to dodge the expense or the clatter of the more popular places. There's a writer's and artist's summer colony some eight miles up the coast from Silmare, and I spent my summers there, what time I wasn't with the Morses. I was there at the writer's roost when the thing happened. It happened in June. The Morses had visited Estelle's people in Atlanta at the end of the school year, Morse going north a week in advance of his wife to get together a corps of servants and put the old house in order. Estelle never liked mussing around a house. Morse telephoned me on his arrival, and I went down the next day in my motorboat. I knew that Estelle would want me to be with him as much as I could, while she was not. I found the house topsy-turvy in the hands of the cleaners. To get away from the dust and litter, Morse and I went out for a spin in his car. The road ran along the foot of a cave-like forest that covered the hill. It used to be a fancy of Morse's that a dweller on some other planet, wholly unacquainted with our forms of life, would, on coming to Silmare, be sure to think the trees the real life of the place, and that the people going about beneath them were some sort of rather unimportant parasitic form. At any rate, the gloomy old town on the sea slope was dark and dim with the shade of maples, beeches and elms, and its steep streets running down to the shell along the beach were very like grottoes in some half-lit cavern with sloping floor. Imagine now, a lot of men and women running down those dim aisles beneath the trees towards the old wharf on the bay shore, and you have a part of that which brought our forty-mile-an-hour clip in Morse's car to a sudden stop. Something's gone wrong here, Ed, I exclaimed, turning to Morse as the car slowed up. I don't think he heard me at all. His face was turned to the wharf, and his vibrant, ashen lips were articulating, It's another! It's another! 
He unlatched the car door and jumped out, hurrying towards the wharf. I was at his heels, the chauffeur at mine. A fisherman's rowboat was drawn up at the wharf, and it had in tow a small motorboat. In the last, as we drew nearer, we could see the bodies of a youth and a girl. My God! Morse gasped, stopping short and gazing stilly at the two forms in the boat. It's Frank Kirby! And Alter Klein. I heard the chauffeur whisper an oath as we went on toward the wharf. The youth and the girl looked about nineteen or twenty. They were dressed for an outing. The boy had on a naval reserve uniform, queerly shot with little pricks and rents of the fabric, and the girl's knickers bore the same strange marks. Her bobbed brown hair lay about her sweet set face like a lovely soft frame about a pitcher. The youth had a powder-smoked bullet hole in his right temple, and the girl bore a wound quite like it. The queerest thing of all, however, was the great number of scratches and slight wounds on their faces, their hands, and their wrists. The Ellis boys were like that. I heard a woman near me whisper to another. Mrs. Van Skoik too, the other answered, with a straight, wild look. And Barry also, I hear. The coroner came pushing through the crowd about the wharf. His examination disclosed nothing we had not already seen, save a revolver with two empty chambers lying in the bottom of the boat. He gave directions for the removal of the bodies. As they carried the girl out of the boat, one of her dead drooping hands, still grasped and carried a small bag of fur tips, such as are used for stuffing aromatic pillows. Eyes filled at that sight. Somehow, that was the most pathetic thing about the whole solemn scene. I turned to Morse for an explanation, but he shook his head at my questioning look, and led the way silently to the group about the fisherman, who had brought in the boats and was now telling and retelling his story. I was about seven miles down coast when I see their boat drifting out to sea, engine dead and nobody rowing. I could see him laying as you saw him here. They were so still that I rode up to him, trying to make out what was wrong. But when I got near enough to see them scratches on their faces, I went weak as a cat. For I saw the Ellis boys and Barry too. It was all I could do to nerve myself up to towing them in. He shook his head and started up the beach. You had no means of judging how far they drifted? Morse asked as we walked beside the man toward the road. No, but I saw him leaving the wharf this morning. They was gay as two kids then. Is it so they was to be married next fall? Yes, it's true, I believe, Morse replied gravely, following me to the car. What in the name of heaven do you make of this, Ed? I asked as our machine moved away. He shook his head silently. But what did they mean about the Ellis boys and Barry? It's a long story, too long to tell here. His eyes were on the driver, meaningly. I didn't know then, as he did, that every servant in the town was already on the verge of pulling up stakes and leaving because of this strange, deadly thing that was killing people right and left among them. True, these two latest victims 
had evidently killed themselves, but everyone seemed sure that it was the thing that had brought it about. Let's go home, Morse suggested. I don't feel in the mood for a drive now. I nodded assent, and he gave the order to the driver. When we got back to the house, we found the library, at least, out of the hands of the dusters, and went into it. Morse was moody. It seemed an effort for him to begin the disclosures I felt he had brought me there to make. In the first place, he began at last, when he saw that I couldn't or wouldn't talk of anything else. The two victims you saw at the wharf just now are merely the latest of a long series, though I'll admit that they have affected me more than has any of the others because of their carefree youth and their promise of life and love and happiness. But I know of six such cases, directly and indirectly, of a number of others. They are all without parallel that I can find in human experience. I shivered and shook my head, moving my chair nearer to his in the great gloomy library. The first of the most recent cases, he went on, was that of Mrs. Van Skoik. You didn't know the Van Skoiks? I never heard the name until today. It was whispered then. They returned here, or rather, she did. Van Skoik ran out from the city, usually Friday nights, going back Mondays. She went in for boating. She was, in fact, an expert with the oars. I was away when the Van Skoik affair happened. It was last summer. Mrs. Van Skoik had been out on the bay in her rowboat. Toward evening, a passing boatman saw her leap from the shore into the water. This, mind you, was in sight of her splendid summer house on the North Bluff. She had everything to live for. The Van Skoiks were wealthy. It came out at the inquest that several of her acquaintances had passed her as she rode up the bay on her way home. But she did not pay the slightest attention to any of their greetings. She seemed dull and dazed, dead alive, as one witness expressed it. The boatman raced to her to get her out of the water, calling an alarm as he did so. But she could not be revived. She was dead. On the beach nearby was her boat. And in the deep sand near the waterside, she had moulded with her hands a shallow grave, on which she had placed a bouquet of wild flowers. Now comes the strangest part of this strange case. Mrs. Van Skoik's clothing was all pricked and torn, and her face and hands were covered with mysterious scratches and small wounds, like those of the two you just now saw at the wharf. I suppose you noticed that detail? Noticed it? I was so struck with it that I saw little else, save the bag of fur tips. The fur tips, yes, that is something. Morse had evidently forgotten my presence for the moment and was staring at the floor in deep thought. I have studied closely three of the five cases that have occurred since that of Mrs. Van Skoik, he went on, coming out of his abstraction. The Ellis boys, you heard Gibbs mention them, were two lads of twelve and fourteen. 
They too were drowned. They had been out clamming, but had come in and had tied up their boat in its usual place. Even at that, their death must have been attributed to accident, but for the fact, when their bodies were recovered, their faces, hands and clothes bore those same strange marks. Foul play of some queer, crazy kind was suspected. I looked for the affair to get into the headlines of the Metropolitan Press, but it didn't. The Barry case happened shortly afterward. Barry was a bachelor who lived with his unmarried sister about half a mile up the coast. He was a farmer, a close-fisted one who wanted his own, and a man who apparently hadn't a thought above his meagre daily savings. But Barry had one weakness, fishing. He had spent the whole of the day of his death somewhere on the bay, fishing. Plenty of people saw him rowing home at nightfall, but he stared straight ahead in the same half-dead way that Mrs. Van Skoik had done, answering the hail of no one. Well, Barry never reached home. That's it. He reached the premises, but not the house. His sister heard a shot, ran out of the barn lot, where she found him dying. He had shot himself with a small rifle, which he kept at the barn for killing rats. Now listen, Barry's face and hands and clothes bore the same queer marks that the others had borne. If Morse meant to impress me, he succeeded. I sat staring from the library window into the gloom beneath the shrubbery without, almost as still and breathless as those forms I had seen lifted from the boat. When at last I looked up, Morse went on speaking. But of the victims of this mysterious baffling thing, those of today are the most touching. They were at the brink of life's sweetest period, the mating time. There was no opposition to their love affair. I am as sure as one can be of anything, almost, that there was not a cloud in their sky when Briggs saw them leave the wharf this morning. In God's name, Ed, what can it be? I cried, springing up to pace the floor. He shook his head. Not one word has anyone ever heard any of them speak between what happened, if anything happened, and their death. Their wounds suggest a fight with some bird or beast, I hazarded. He looked at the floor in thought. I can't think it he replied at last, raising his gaze to mine. The scratches are superficial, and there seems no sign of the claw or talon about them. Has no search of the vicinity been made? No, it's been talked of, but, well, for what would one search in a case of this kind? That silenced me, for the moment. But that is not the real reason a search has not been made, he went on. There's the danger that a search would result in more fatalities. I'm willing to risk it, I ventured grimly. Not alone, he objected, startled by my remark. Well, with a party then. A party would be hard to handle, hard to control. It would destroy more evidence than it gathered. Besides, a party would look silly when you don't know what you're hunting for. A still hunt would be better. I took that as a sort of challenge, 
I'll go with you, if you like, I said. When? I considered. I had an unfinished article overdue, and an idle typist up at the colony drawing pay, while she flirted with no telling which of the other scribblers or dabblers. Would the day after tomorrow do? I asked. Perfectly. I have all the time there is. He had become laconic, but I could see that he was still tense and nervous. To relieve the strain, I asked, These other cases you mentioned, outside of those you've looked into, where did you learn of them? In the files of the local newspaper, I went to the bottom of the entire mouldy heap. Fifty-four years. A fire had destroyed everything up to 1867. He was walking the floor now, his eyes gleaming, like those of an ecstatic. What did you find in the files? I demanded. I found eleven mysterious deaths in the fifty-four years, he hurled back at me, stopping short in his uneasy prance across the floor. Too many for one small town, he added. I found two that all but one of them happened in summer, and they all exhibited a strange identical lack of cause. Four of the eleven are known to have borne the strange wounds we have seen, and I suspect that three of the others did. Their bodies were never recovered from the bay. Four of the eleven went in pairs, and were fishermen without, I should say, a thought above their daily catch. There's something deadly abnormal about it, Ed, I mused aloud, peering at the floor. Yes, if the extremely rare or possibly the unique is abnormal, he countered. He plainly was at his theorizing again, and I thought I might as well go to the bottom of it. An idea about it, Ed? I half asked. He hesitated standing with one foot on a chair to gaze gloomily through a window. Nothing credible, Esty, he replied at last. Nothing that I would care to advance, even to you. There was but one thought in either of our minds, I'm sure, when I left him a few minutes later, and that was our proposed search for a thing that I, at least, hadn't the least idea of what we were searching for. He intended no publicity, no unnecessary risk, no self-sacrifice at that time. I'm sure of that. Chapman took up a glass decanter from the desk beside us and went off into a tiny lavatory just off the den for a turn of fresh water. It was a hot night, As he came out of the lavatory, he snapped a switch, and I saw the lights in the library go out. They're all in bed, he said. There's no use having the place lit up like a powerhouse. We drank some of the water, and Chapman lit another cigar. I had had enough of smoking. Morse intended to play square, Chapman resumed. I am positive of that. But when my telephone bell rang at an unearthly hour of the morning we were to go on our search, I knew that something had gone awry. I got up and went to the instrument, its metallic whine, as aloof and impersonal 
as though it was giving out the weather forecast. Let me know that a milkman, early astir, had found Morse sitting at a raised window of his study, dead. I threw on my clothes and ran out to the boathouse. I had a key. There was a line of daylight low in the northeast, but no one was up. It was supposed to be a 15-minute run to Silmer, but I must have jerked the painter through a stay ring in the old wharf at the foot of the town in 10 minutes at the most. Early as it was, a crowd of townsfolk had gathered outside the window of Morse's study when I arrived. They fell back in whispering groups beneath the trees as I entered the gate. Naturally, Morse's death, following so close on that of Frank Kirby and Alter Klein, had fallen on them with cumulative effect. They were awed. In the dim light under the trees, they looked as might a group of primitive men huddled in the face of some unknown mysterious danger. I approached the window slowly and in extreme dread, stopping short when I reached it to stare fixedly into Ed's face as at the Medusa. It bore the baffling marks I was now familiar with, the marks I had seen on the youth and the girl in the boat. It was a moment between him and me. Not pleasant, those rare moments alone with the dead. I don't know whether death really adds weight to what one has said or believed or advocated before dying, but I do know that my mind brushed nearer Morse's queer theory while I was standing there before his stark body than ever before. Under the spell of his dead presence, I watched a green worm measure its laborious way across the sill of the open window between us, watched it rear its forward length in the air, pause an instant, then bring up its trailing rear as though it were dragging a burden. The worm brought to my mind one of Morse's favourite arguments, that its kind are a significant connecting link between the two great divisions of life, animals and plants. Its imperfect mobility relating it to the one and its green colour pointing plainly to the other. He believed that its alternate movement of the first part of its body and then the other was due to its scant dole of mobile energy, sufficient only to animate half its body at a time. I turned from the window and went into the house. Everything was just as it had been the last time I saw him. Everything but Ed himself. The familiar appointments of the study, the books on their shelves, the writing machine on its stand, the pens gleaming dully in their wire holder, seemed only to accentuate the dead man's inability to move. He was now like them, inert. Somehow they brought out the fact, subtly, that he was still all there except that mysterious quality called consciousness, with its accompanying parallel, the power to move. There were two doctors in the town, and they were both there, in the room. I knew Knowles, and he introduced me to Ebersley in a whisper. Imagine a doctor whispering over the dead. It shows what the thing had done to us, to all of us. The coroner 
hadn't yet been called. We can make nothing of it, Dr. Knowles whispered, meaning clearly the cause of Morse's act. There was no mystery about the cause of his death, or rather the means of it. His lips were burned, and an empty glass on the writing desk smelled of acid. He seems much like the others, Knowles went on, but, he hesitated, looked at Ebersley, then back at me. You probably wouldn't know of... Yes, I know, I interrupted. Morse told me, himself. He, we were, interested in the other cases. We guessed that, Ebersley interposed. That's why we telephoned you. That, and these... He left these written sheets for you. He crossed the room to the writing machine stand and lifted a paperweight from a few pages of manuscript. I took up the sheets of paper, gingerly. There wasn't a reason under the blue sky why I should take these two doctors into my confidence in the matter of Morse's last words to me. But such was my immeasurable interest and theirs. No thought of any other course ever entered any of our heads, I think. We tiptoed from the study into the old parlour as cautiously as though we feared the contents of the precious sheets might be jeopardised by a heavy footfall. Grouped at a window for light, we read the dimly penned pages, handing them from one to another as we read. Chapman left off speaking and leaned over the writing desk before him. He unlocked a drawer and took out of it a size 11 white envelope. I felt goofy, definitely on the verge of an ordeal. The taboo of the cerements was about the thing Chapman held in his hand. It was getting an ugly time of the night, and the house was still as a crypt. From off somewhere, a pensive chorus of frogs reached us faintly, while nearer at hand, without the screened windows, the whine of baffled mosquitoes haunted the night. Estelle doesn't know I kept this, Chapman said, slipping the rubber band off the envelope. She thinks I burned it. She has a horror of it, and with reason. It very nearly sent her after Morse. I took the thing when he held it out. I had steeled myself to take it, while he was fussing with it. I suspected that he noticed my reluctance, my nervousness. At any rate, he took up a book as I unfolded the manuscript and read, My dear Esty, I hope you will forgive my going alone on the search we had planned. When I tell you, it resulted wholly from an accident, the turning up of an old, old book by the house cleaners in their work. I came across it soon after you left, yesterday. It gave me a lead that was irresistible. I simply could not wait. You will believe that I deeply regret grieving Estelle and you, but the riddle drew me as a magnet draws metal. I guess you know why. At the outset, I wanted to warn you against the tendency of the human mind to dismiss as incredible and unworthy of serious consideration the exceedingly strange or the unique. It is a grave fault, or limitation, rather, 
of our mentality. Since the mind itself is no more than a set of comparisons of known forms, it is at ease and satisfied only among the known and comparable. The unlike and the unfamiliar confuse and offend it. The series of mysterious cases which will, I have made sure of that, culminate with my own death, may be merely the results of prenomena, as definite and, once we know them, as commonplace as gravity or the electric current, once the laughingstock of incredulous minds. I have long had more than an inkling of the nature of the fell entity I set myself the task of bringing to light. When I left Silmer this morning, I knew fairly well what I was looking for. My problem was chiefly one of where to look for it, and in that I had one governing clue, that is, all the victims of this deadly enemy of our kind which I was seeking had apparently reached it by means of boats. One of the victims, too, had also brought away, probably from the place I sought, a bag of fur tips. This fact seemed to me of some significance, since fur is not a universal growth hereabouts. Then, as if arranged by fate, came the finding of the old book. It was an odd volume of the colonial period, containing a legend which assigned a haunted island to our bay, an island that the red man, who had lived here for centuries, could in no wise be induced to visit. I assumed that the tradition had something to do with the present mystery. With these premises, I set out in a rowboat before daybreak, reaching the island directly east of Silmer, soon after daylight. On it I found no fur. In fact, this island is very sparsely wooded, and I gave little time to it. Rowing southward, I came to the second island at 9.30 in the morning. It is more densely wooded, with a sprinkling of fir among its pines. But, though I spent upwards of an hour exploring it, I found nothing unusual about it. Leaving this island, I continued my course southward. The morning was now far spent, and I began to feel that perhaps I had embarked on a fool's errand. Then, suddenly, I felt a strong presentiment come over me and I immediately fell under the guidance of that ancient monitor of the race, intuition. As I approached the third island to the southward, I felt strangely assured that somewhere within its wooded depths I would find the lair of the unnameable object of my search. This island is not greatly different from the others I had visited, except that it is heavily wooded throughout its extent. It is not large and has the general contour of an ellipsis. At its southern extremity there is a rocky headland, the extreme point of the promontory being occupied by a strangely sharp and slender pinnacle of rock, undermined by the beating sea until it seems to point to the sun at noonday. This singular formation and the deep gloom beneath the woods of the island 
lent it a distinctly weird and eerie aspect. When I entered the dark wood after beaching the boat, I had to stoop and creep to avoid the thickets of dead branches that clothed the lower portions of all the trees. As I penetrated deeper and ever deeper into the death-like stillness of the forest, the darkness became as dense as that of a dimly lit cave. A great loneliness depressed me as I stopped from time to time and stood in the vast dim silence, tensely listening to the beating of my own heart. The sense of guidance that had taken possession of me in the boat still had me in its keeping. My course through the wood was in no sense a search. Rather, it was a toilsome passage to a definite point, which a strange assurance told me I would neither fail to find nor fail to know when I came to it. I at last ran onto a small, circular rift in the forest and stopped on its verge as suddenly as though it had been a precipice. The weird gloom that hung above the carpet of dead pine needles in the wood here broke into a half-light that was like a thick mist in colour and opaqueness. Though it was high noon, not a ray of sunlight penetrated either the forest or the rift by which I stood. Strangely moved, as if at some hellish shrine, I sank to the ground with my back against a tree. I glanced down at my hands. They were scratched and bleeding from tiny wounds made by the sharp points of dead branches with which they had come in contact. I could feel similar abrasions on my face. Already I bore the uncanny sign with which the evil genius of this baleful death spot marked its victims. My eyes fell on two slight indentations in the thick bed of pine needles under a double tree at my feet. Beneath the two depressions in the litter lay a little heap of fir boughs from which the tips had been removed. It was the discard from Alter Klein's pillow. I knew from that, if from nothing else, that I had found the thing I sought. The trees about the rift were very old, with knotted, gnarled, and misshapen trunks. Their dead lower branches, gleaming like whitened bones through the grey light of the place, and surmounted by their green tops, suggested life, superimposed on death, ever growing, ever dying. While I mused on this thought, I became conscious of a sound. It was like the self-made murmur one hears in the silence of a cavern, but seemed to come from the upper part of the rift, as though the sound of the sea, by some freak of acoustics, was caught and repeated by the mystic cleft in the forest. The soft, mill-like murmur had come creeping on my senses unawares, but once I had taken note of it, I was never afterward able to disregard it. The sense of isolation was appalling. The gloom of the wood and the grey of the rift cast a deep depression on me, and in the pulseless monotone that filled the place there was all the haunting sadness of the night wind's moan. The voice of the forest, 
man's earliest lullaby, has ever affected him deeply, imbuing him with religious fervour, abrasing him in awe and fear. The Druid's oak with its prayers and sacrifice, the African's hallowed fetish wold, the sylvan shrine of the South Sea savage, all are remnants of an ancient kinship between man and tree that still appeals through the subtle and desolate avenues of the soul. But I attribute the unique power of this strange spot on the island possessed to a much older kinship, a brotherhood dating clear back to life's dim beginnings when the animal and vegetable forms were identical in their common ancestry. To me, this vengeful death trap seems nothing less than the ruin on the part of the trees that constitute it of an old, old bargain, an ancient covenant tacitly made by first life, when the materials it found here required a division of method for their utilization, and the primitive forms drew apart into two classes, the plants remaining fixed and insentient secured their sustenance in one spot, the animal forms developing mobility in their search for food along with its parallel consciousness. It is a sure thing that each of these divisions of life still retains, in suppressed form, the characteristics of the other, rather, of its own disused half. The plants retain the sex character, while many animals are sexless. The fungus remains in one spot, yet feeds by alimentation. Some animals have lost their power of movement, have vegetated, while others possess the leaf's power of direct fixation of carbon. Man, highest of all animals, loses both sentiency and volition in catalepsy and kindred states, while insectivorous plants have clearly developed both mobility and consciousness. Thus, I could go on at great lengths to convince you that the attributes of animal life merely slumber in the plant, and that they often are reawakened. No rational explanation of the wood's spell presents itself, save that the old trees on the verge of the rift during the centuries of arrested growth forced on them by a sterile soil had devoted their idle eons to developing their sleeping consciousness, that they, though defeated in their efforts to attain mobility itself, had yet achieved, preternaturally, some measure of mobility's parallel, mentality, or at least a weird power of suggestion, which they were able to employ in a strange, telepathic way, on such as fell into their grey and terrible web. As a pitch plant lies in wait for its prey, these misshapen monsters of the vegetable world awaited their victims. The chief accessory by which they convened their deadly virus of depression to the minds of their prey was the grey rift in the forest. This was like a seer's crystal in which floated dimly the entire flux of being, from incandescent world birth to dead orb whirling in darkness, the vast whole appearing in a condensed brevity 
that was like the fall of a yellowed leaf. It was a cinematograph of eternity itself, staggering, yes, fatal, to any mere mote of humanity whose eyes fell on the screen. The primitive perspective one got on gazing into the mist-like void was paralyzing, and its endless parade of living forms made consciousness and movement appear an unending punishment, an unfinishable task, like the doom of Sisyphus. The inert and somnolent vegetable, at rest and incapable of suffering, seemed to have fallen on a better lot than had its cousin, the animal. The latter, ever prodding with the impulse to do so, to keep going, appeared to be playing the clown's part in the pageant of being. Such was the sophistry with which the enormity of the island poisoned the minds of its victims, the while it sapped them of their will and wish to live. And I am convinced that this gloom-girt upas of the wood had learned through the centuries a cunning that guided it in the adaption of its subtle propaganda to the mind of every being, savage or civilized, learned or illiterate, child or adult, who came within its deadly spell. How long I sat peering into the mist-like void of the rift, I do not know. I was aroused from the torpor that lay on me by the fall of a dead branch from a tree at my side. I started up, shaking as with a palsy. The place had grown almost pitch dark. The returning tide of animation and love of life flushed through me and sent me fleeing wildly from the spot. I ran through the wood, scarcely checking my half-mad course to feel my way among the dead branches that wounded me in the darkness. I crashed out of the tangle at some distance from the boat, and, as I walked along the beach towards it, I felt the spell of the rift, which I had momentarily thrown off, settle back on me. I heard again its inescapable monotone of sound. I then recognized the activity that had carried me away from the spot, as the mere reaction of a wounded spirit, the reflex shrinking of sentiency from a blow. Deeply depressed, I approached the boat and stood beside it in thought. The lapping sea crooned a low accompaniment to the ceaseless sound that was in my ears. It was nightfall, an early star twinkled in the east, and as I gazed at it, absently I found my imagination peopling its unseen satellites with the appalling infinity of living forms I had reviewed at the rift. I grew cold, a tremor like that of a chill shook me, and I reached for my coat, which I had left in the boat. As I was about to put it on, an idea was suggested to me by the sight of a match case that fell from one of its pockets. Catching up the little silver box, I ran back to the wood and crept a little way into the underbrush. I struck a match and touched it to the layer of pine needles on the ground. I was startled as the flames leapt up in the dark thicket and plunging out of the wood and across the beach, I leapt into the boat as though pursued by an embodied spirit of the island and pushed hastily away from the shore. 
The litter on the ground and the dry lower branches of the trees fed the fire like an inflammable oil, and soon the entire wood was a mass of flames beneath, above which the green treetops writhed like a tortured multitude. The upflare of the flames, lighting the level sea, fell on me with a glare like that of the blazing eyes of a monster, dying in rage, as I rode swiftly away from the accursed island. Two hours later, I landed at the old abandoned wharf south of town, made my way home unseen, and at once set about this task, which is to be my last. I apprehend that my theory in this matter will encounter unlimited scepticism, and I grant that certain of my predilections may have made me over-credulous. With such as take this view of it, I will have no quarrel, but I suggest that they explore the fields of natural suggestion and impression. There is a much broader and more potent force in this quarter, I am sure, than has yet been uncovered. That definite and effective impression, whether elating or depressive, is a faculty of certain aspects of nature, is well known, and I am quite sure that, whether or not the deadly spot on the island was conscious, was capable of volition, the element of suggestion was a potent factor in its fell spell. So the amazing message ended. There were no farewell clauses, not even a signature, as though the burden of mere existence had suddenly become more than the writer could bear, and he had simply quit. Quit writing, quit living. Indeed, the last lines of the script had grown weak and indistinct, as though the writer's power to think had outlasted his power to move the pen across the page. The last of the writing trailed off into an illegible scrawl, a mere meaningless trail across the paper, like the track of a crawling worm. Chapman looked up from his book when I laid the sheets on the desk, but he remained silent, forcing me to speak first. Of all the... I stopped, for want of a fitting word with which to express my opinion. You think so? There was a tentativeness in his inflection that might mask either defence or derision of Morse's madness. And I thought you stupidly sane, Esty, I exclaimed. He smiled. Well, I'm not going to do anything about it, whether Morse was right or wrong. In fact, there's nothing to do about it. But there's more to his theory than you think. I've put the thing up to men who ought to know and they all concede that Morse's premises have weight, but none of them, of course, would follow him to his conclusions. Even the great Sundberg was interested, though he finally labelled it a case of a man finding what he started out to find, whether it was there or not. That is, he felt that Morse's bias had led him to his conclusions. Oddly enough, Considine was the kindest one among them. You knew, or did know, Considine. He must have joined the staff about the time you went west. I knew him. I thought there was a sort of feud, professional jealousy or the like, between him and Morse. 
There was. But Considine's ill will stopped at the grave. He met Morse's theory more than halfway. Went into Bergson, farther than I could follow him, and finished with that old saw about the poorhouse or the asylum being the only place for the man in advance of his times. But the other victims! I exploded. How do you? How does anyone account for them? They hadn't Morse's predilections. Oh, there's no mystery about them, except their number. Even their number is nearly or quite equaled by a few other famous death spots in this queer world. Why, man, one of the most ill-famed of them all is no more than blocks. I should say, from the headquarters of your own beloved Harvester Trust in the rotunda of a skyscraper. What are its wire nettings but a tangible acknowledgement of its deadly spell? And how many victims had it claimed before the wire was put up? Morse was right enough in his second guess. It is a form of suggestion that does it, depressive suggestion. It is exactly as though melancholia were a communicable disease, and this spot on the island a carrier of it, and a carrier able to give the malady to anyone who came near. There are a number of places in the world that are known to be fatal to certain people. The one at Silmer differed from the others, only in that it was fatal to all. It was 100% efficient. Great waterfalls, high cliffs, and even desert wastes possess this depressing power, as do high bridges and lofty domes. It's the perspective that does it, as Morse suspected. It puts you under a reserved microscope, makes you little. You may be sure that I've gone to the bottom of this thing, and you can take it from me that any view which gives us that crushing realisation of our infinite unimportance to the whole is not good for us. We must remain unconscious of the whole, and especially must we be able to disregard duration. No man can live merely waiting for the next instant. And that was the peculiar doom of the island. It set its victims counting the spokes in eternity's wheel. How did Estelle take it all? I asked, to break the uneasy silence that fell on us. My question sounded crass enough, but I wasn't quick enough to stop it once I had set it going. Chapman hesitated. She hasn't got over it yet, entirely, but she will. The mistake was in letting her see this at all. He tapped the folded message in his hand. But what was I to do? Her father and her married sister had come on from Atlanta with her, and I put it up to them. They wanted she should see it. We, none of us, felt that we could withhold such a thing from her. What we failed to take into account was her knowledge of the other cases and of Morse's work on them. Chapman sat staring at the desktop. Estelle came nearer believing Morse's theory than has anyone else. She was a nervous wreck for a while, afraid of her own shadow and of all other shadows. Strangely or not, she clung to me. I had been through much of it with her. She had been away from her own people, except for brief visits 
so long that I was really nearer to her than they were. The upshot of it all was that I married her after a decent time. Her folks wanted that too. They are a sensible lot. We have spent a long time getting her out of it. Travel won't do. We tried that. It led us into many suggestive surroundings, too many gloomy spots. You wouldn't think that just a flowing stream or any steady movement or sound would so upset anyone. The sea, too, is taboo. She can't bear the sight or sound of it, nor the shade of the trees, nor even the shade of a porch. That is why we have neither trees nor porch here. The steady roar of the wind in a grove would drive her to madness in 24 hours. So at last we found this spot and settled down. We are so far from the bay that you wouldn't know it was there, yet near enough to the city to avoid isolation. But if I had given you, in all this, an impression of being burdened, I stopped him short with a reassuring gesture. I could honestly do that. Estelle, in any state of nerves, could never be a burden to any man. I recalled the thrill I had got from the pressure of her soft, cool hand at our greeting. Saw again her superb figure at the piano, its loveliness suggested where it was not revealed by the tight and loose set of the becoming house dress she wore. She was so eminently desirable, so full of warm, pulsing life, that I could not ward off the thought that, whatever Professor Morse might have done for Silmer or for science, he had done Esty Chapman an immeasurably good turn. I sat in silence, thinking, the deep stillness of the great dark rooms that opened upon the den, pressing in on me like a physical presence. To get away from the eerie feeling, I asked, what kind of a stir did this thing kick up in Silmer? It kicked up none, if you mean this, Chapman replied, reaching for the envelope and putting the folded sheets back into it. They know nothing of this up there. The coroner didn't get within rods of it. I saw to that. The whole affair would be almost forgotten in the course of time in Silmer if it hadn't left a reminder, a monument. The island is yet there. I rode out and took a look at it, naturally. Ebersley went with me. We went at night to avoid talk and perhaps a following of the curious. The island lies black and desolate on the horizon of passing boatmen. Its stony surface, thick set with the blackened boles of the burned pines, still standing. There isn't a living beast, bird or bush on it. The most deserted spot on earth. I wouldn't want to. It isn't a nice place to be on a moonless night with the dull faces of the rocks staring dimly at the stars. And the night breeze from off the lapping surf, strumming the low, haunting voices of the standing dead. Chapman was seldom eloquent, and I sat abashed at this peroration of his. In the deep silence that followed it, we heard again the lonely cry of frogs in the distance, the weird wail of mosquitoes in the darkness without.
Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Connor. We're going to talk about The Mystery of Silmare by Hugh Irish, uh, first published in Weird Tales, July 1927. Only published in Weird Tales, July 1927. And then, Connor, you recorded it, put it up on YouTube. With uh, I didn't mm-hmm. realize at the end, maybe I've forgotten that you did a little commentary on it, which I was very pleased to hear when I listened to it again today. Um, and there's a little bit at the beginning as well. I want you to do more of that. <laughs> I really, yeah, yeah. really like that stuff. That It's like some some guy says, here's a story about E.F. Benson. And then I hear the story, I'm like, what what about the analysis? <laughs> well, hmm. don't you want to give me your what thoughts you on think? it? Yeah. And it's like, why is this an interesting story? Um, I don't want just biographical information that you find on Wikipedia. I want like some hard takes like the reason this story is awesome or the reason this story sucks right after you present mm. it <laughs> it's like wow interesting makes me want to pay attention um so i uh i i help my students uh write a lot it's mostly like supposed to be essay writing um there's no real point in essay writing it's a 17th century art that nobody practices except for elites and their you know, working for magazines or something, and they're trying to convince us to go into a war. So I, I'm not uh, 100% convinced it's a good idea to speak, uh, teach uh, uh, kindergarten <laughs> through high school kids essay writing, but I do know that writing is important. Um, and every year there's a uh, Halloween writing contest in the local paper, and I often get my students to write the stories to fit the requirements, which is 500 words, uh, using three vocabulary words. Um, and none of my students ever win, but, uh, one of my students, uh, I tweeted his story out and it got published in a real magazine as opposed to the newspaper. Um, on the other hand, he would have got paid by the word way better (laughs) had he won the contest because writing Mm -hmm. for writing short stories and novels is a, is a grifter's game. It's it's supplying things. Supply, that, yes, exceeds demand. Yes, I think, unfortunately, by you know a vast amount. The only thing that could possibly be less of a good venture for you would be to start writing poetry. I think short stories no value, <laughs> novels almost no value. Long fantasy series possible a little bit of value if you happen to luck into it but uh it doesn't mean that short stories are bad um so i've picked the two that were in the paper i'm going to ask you to read one of them and then i'll read the other one and then we'll talk about why one of them's way better than the other one even though one of them is way better than the other one (laughs) is that okay okay? good way to start this discussion of the mystery of silmer by talking about two horror stories that are unrelated. Here we go. Okay. So, Run by Naomi Arduini. Is that right? I think so. Okay. Um, her body was trembling. Her extremities were numb. Her vision was blurred. Dirty lacerations overflowed with blood and spilled down the surface of her flesh. She winced in pain and gently pressed her hands against the raw skin above her eyebrows. The chilly northern air mixed with her hot breath as she exhaled. As she exhaled, a tiny cloud formed around her mouth, then disappeared gradually into the hands of nature. 
She tilted her head. <clears throat> she tilted her head up slightly, but quickly pulled it back after catching a glimpse of the morning sun. The bright, warm glow appeared right between her two feet, through thousands of miles, though thousands of miles away. The orange rays struck the tree trunks as if casting a magical spell of nourishment. She rubbed her eyes as she sat up slowly from the forest floor. The world spun around and around, like those nightmares you get when you're sick. Her clothes stuck to the backside of her body, loathsome mud as the glue. Her vision cleared, and her mind caught up with her, fuzzy but discernible. Fuzzy but discernible memories of her family, the havoc that had been wreaked, them. A shock pumped through every nerve, lifting the hairs on her arms and legs. She swallowed hard, and her eyes widened. She realized where she was. With uncanny, with uncanny timing, the harmonies of birdsong concluded suddenly. The silence was disquiet. The creature knew she was there. Her sneakers pounded harshly against the forest floor, propelling her aching body forwards with every lunge. She could hear its tail swiftly slipping through the. She could hear its tail swiftly slipping through the evergreens, its smooth body slicing slicing through the winter fog. She kept running and had no intention of stopping until she escaped or was eaten. Her energy was draining. Her side developed a wrenching cramp, but she kept running regardless. Her thick braids rhythmically banged on her upper back. The creature sped up gradually. Its carving, its craving to catch her, grew with every molecule of oxygen that entered its seething body. Its craving to peel away her skin and taste the unique flavor of her organs, leaving nothing but a carcass as evidence. Dry twigs. Battered at her arms and legs, tattooing her skin with tears and shiny beads of blood. She could hear it growing. She could hear it growling under its breath, waiting for the perfect moment. Waiting for the perfect moment to pounce. Racing tears burned their tracks into her shivering cheek. Her mouth offered a most agonizing, painful shriek. That echoed deep into the eerie forest. If only echoes would return to you like a boomerang and report what they discovered on their journeys. She knew she was going to die. She escaped this forest. She accepted that this forest would be the last image she knew, the last memory before everything she had ever loved was stolen, the last scene in her movie before the credits rolled, the last sentence of her story. Before the author's note, in the blink of an eye, her life was gone, brutally plucked from her. A messy splatter of crimson, ho- a messy splatter of crimson horror remained. You're uh, you're good at reading. Uh, you're reading too well. <laughs> you're trying yeah. to make it perfect. Um, uh, here's my crappy version of um, a story called uh, "Inevitable Outcome" by. Uh, Adam Padoxin, age 18. The other one was age 12, I think. Didn't mention that. Um, I wake with a start. A nightly occurrence this past month. Today is the October 22nd, 2203. 
but the disquieting memory of September 21st haunts all my nightmares. My wife's hand in mine as we stroll on the bridge, showering in the night rain. But that stroll ended with tragedy. I lay in bed, devastated, trying to forget, hopelessly flailing. Oh, sorry, hopelessly failing. Restless, I put on my army green coat and shoes and go outside. My breath puffs out like my breath puffs out smoke-like in the early spring dawn. Although it's not raining, the air is the air's sharp coldness is reminiscent enough of the memory I try to suppress. I wander aimlessly, eventually stumbling onto the bridge in my confusion. Blinding fury erupts inside me as I recall the loathsome man sending me back to that horrid moment. The monstrous man shoving my wife, her losing her losing balance and toppling over the r- bridge railing. The rain pattering incessantly onto his dark green raincoat as he slouched away to avoid my gaze, and the paralyzing fear that struck me as the man climbed over and plunged down after my wife. I've had enough. My insomniac brain has been formulating a plan for the entire month, consuming me to no end. As lead physicist, I have full clearance with my keycard, so I encounter no problems getting into my lab. Not many people are in this early, but surprised after my month-long absence, they bombard me with quest- uh, with greetings. I ignore them, hurtling towards our main project, the time machine. We've finished the construction, but have not yet verified its safety. It's going to be risky. I know I'd get fired if I enter, but I lock the door anyway, seal myself inside, and pick the date and time. After a brief sense of vertigo, I regain my balance. I cautiously exit the machine. No one is in the dark lab. I rush through the main door and look up at the city's holographic clock, September 22nd, 2203, 11.37 p.m. It worked! I have five minutes to save my wife. The rain whips at my face as I sprint, trying to stop me. My mind, muddy after a month of sleepless torment, is now crystal clear. I must save her. I breathlessly reach the bridge, and an uncanny chill runs through my spine. I see myself from behind, hand in hand with my wife, gazing into the dark, twinkling river below. The sight fills me with resolve. I sprint forward with stretched arms, ready to rip my wife away from the perilous railing. I'm just about to reach her when my foot slips on the slick, rainy concrete. Time slows down. My hands touch her, but only momentarily. My weight pushes her over the railing. She plummets. My vision tunnels, heart deafening my ears. I can feel my past self staring into the back of my dark green raincoat. Unable to cope with looming realization, I join her in the river's watery depths. (laughs) Cool. You you hadn't read either of these before, right? No. Um, First one, I think, is a werewolf story. Do you agree? kind of hard to tell i was pitch i was picturing like a komodo dragon or something oh okay <laughs> to be honest well i mean you uh, are... only because of the tail slipping across the I, I figured that was a wolf tail but uh, honestly it mm. doesn't say right there's no mention no. of a werewolf or you know the, she she does have hair on her arms and legs um i think i think it's a girl i'm i'm going from memory now um mm-hmm I mean, she, she has, has braids. she has braids, right? So that makes sense. Um, but I don't see like I don't I I feel like it could be seen as like a a cycle of werewolfery or something. 
Uh, but I, I'm not sure there's, there's two characters there. On the other hand, I think it's very well written sentence by sentence. What did you think about yes. that first one? Um, I thought it was good. I can see you mentioned before that it's more like a scene from a film. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think uh, that's true, but it kind of works because of the last paragraph where it's saying this is the end scene of right, the right. film or the yeah. last paragraph of a story before. Yeah. The Whoever's tutoring this um, kid did a good job. I'll just read that again. She knew she was mm-hmm. going to die. She accepted that this forest would be the last image she saw. So that's the first last, right? The last memory before everything she had ever loved was stolen. The last scene in the movie before the credits rolled. The last sentence of this, her story before the author's note. <laughs> so this kid is obviously mm-hmm. somebody who's read a lot of books, right? Thinking about how books are structured. Um, in a blink of an eye, her life gone, brutality plucked from her, a messy splatter of crimson horror remained. But I, I still don't really... I, I see how it has a an ending. Some of them, like I, I've been reading them over the years, and a lot of them are like some kid is being chased. <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. um, in this case, it could be that it could be that there's two characters, um, but it might be that I, my theory is that it's a werewolf. But mm-hmm. there's no strong evidence saying that. So unless I talked to the stu- I was going to say the student, uh, the author, and said, uh, was this supposed to be a werewolf? I don't think um, I could confirm it just by looking at the text again. And even if that's true, um, I could confirm it by looking at the text like a fourth time. Um, that's some sort of writing problem, unless it's supposed to be exactly what it is, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So the title mm-hmm. is Run... I don't feel that gives me enough insight to know. Whereas the other one, uh, I think is a super simple story, but it's totally a story. You see what I mean? Yes. Yeah. It It, has, uh, sets up a problem, resolves mm -hmm. it. We get the kind of full cycle and it's, everything's closed off. There's no questions left. No. Well, Um, I mean, you you might have some questions like how dumb is this guy? (laughs) Yeah, um, uh, where, where is this time machine and mm, who made it and whatever else? But um, there's only one character but, basically in the whole story. He doesn't talk to the other characters, right? No. Which, but yeah. it's it's Whereas, it's a cycle and it's a circle, and then the title helps tell the story. I think inevitable outcome. That's a judgment by the author on what we've just seen, right? Hmm. Mm-hmm. But sentence by sentence, I think it's actually very clunky um like it feels like it's written by a kid in a certain sense but i much prefer the second one because i don't think i learned anything from the first one other than the kids good at writing sentences whereas the second one uh, it's not uh you know wholly original idea right time travel where you accidentally cause the outcome that you were trying to stop right um, there's a great story by mm. Michael Moorcock called uh, Behold the Man, uh, where a guy, uh, some academician goes back in time to find Jesus and see what the truth of him is. And he's walking around ancient Palestine asking everybody about the son of, <laughs> the son of God. And they're like, who are you talking about? And at the end of the story, he's up on Golgotha, nailed to a tree, looking around, where the hell is Jesus? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, I see. <laughs> it's fun, right? 
Um, so time travel oh, yeah. stories uh, like this are very familiar. I I don't think that this one is a ripoff of a particular story, but this is the kind of time travel story you see in movies all the time, TV shows, and short fiction. It's a story. Um, I think what your goal I, is in writing is very important. <laughs> Sorry, yes. go for it. Um, well, I was going to say, I think... Um, Run is, uh, yeah, it is, is, um, while I think it's can definitely be called a story, it is, uh, much more nebulous than, um, what was the second story? It's in- inevitable, inevitable outcome. outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when you said that, like, there's a, um, when you're writing a story, there's the sort of reason for writing a story. Um, Run has, like, great uh like well done language Mm -hmm, beautiful Um, but it is sort of meanders and it's like pleasant to read but afterwards you're sort of like uh um okay it's scary um and if this uh, this is supposed to be a scary story contest right so which one is scarier i think the first one's scarier but i don't know what i'm scared of where in the second one I feel like a, a kind of, what do they call it, catharsis or something, right? Like, um, it's actually not a scary story in the same way. So the fact that it won as well is interesting. And also, like, the level of the students, one of them, oh, I keep calling them students, they're people, but uh, I assume mm. they're also in school. The 12-year-old one, um, sentence by sentence, is higher level, I think, uh, although, in a wrong <laughs> wrong way, the writing is wrong, uh, as as opposed to the eighteen year old who has, um, sort of a little clunkier style, but a much more a better sense of what the what the story is doing, other than just yes. maybe scaring you. Mm. It's it's like it's it makes sense in a way that the other one can't. Or at yes. least couldn't without more expansion. So it always reminds me of like when you start watching a horror movie and somebody's running at the beginning of the movie, right? And they're being chased and we don't know who's chasing them. And then the opening credits start. And then we find, uh, you know, some police standing over the dead body or the teenagers at the lake standing over the dead body. And, and then later on, we're going to find out what happened, right? Mm-hmm. But that's, that's not, uh, that, that opening scene is not, a story. It's part of a story. It has. Uh, it certainly has more closure than some of the ones I've read over the years. But um, why? Uh, why do I bring this up? Because the mystery of Somer is a really good story with some clunky mm-hmm. writing here and there. Actually, it's not that clunky. It's pretty polished, but it's a little longer than it probably needs to be. But it also just doesn't. It you know obviously it resonated enough with you and with me because i recommended it to you um that it it should have more attention so why doesn't it is my question um so i would uh i think as a story it's competent i would probably agree with you that some of the writing is clunky um but uh the premise is good um it resolves. It has everything it really should. Although I didn't feel um, 
that it left a huge impression on me. Mm. I uh, didn't feel that, I suppose, a scary short, a scary story should, to a certain degree, make you feel like you are also somehow mm-hmm. threatened or mm-hmm. you could be in this situation. And I didn't feel that with the mystery of Silmer. Um, so in that sense, I think the story has to operate on a bit more of an intellectual level mm. um, in order to remain relevant to the reader in, mm-hmm. because you're not uh, being uh, directly, feeling like you're directly threatened by the, um, the events in the story. They have to be interesting enough for mm-hmm. you to want to think about them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's tough to pin down exactly why this story didn't become a classic of weird fiction because it has all the right ingredients mm-hmm. to to be so. And I think um, having read it like uh, like gone over it four or five times or mm-hmm. more by this point, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think um, it's uh, it's tough to tough to pin down what exactly that is well uh, let's let's start with uh where i found it i was listening to voluminous um uh, do you listen to mm-hmm. voluminous the podcast? i have uh, yeah listened you should always be listening it. all the time it's a really mm. good podcast one of my favorite podcasts because they have content which is they just read hp lovecraft letters and then they talk about you know some of the details to try and make it clear to what, you know, he's, he's not writing for an audience other than the person he's writing to. Um, so sometimes there needs to be like some clarification and who they're talking about or whatever, but he's just an idea. He's a great ideas man. And he's always sharing ideas in his letters. And, um, they, I think they mentioned this one in a letter that was, yeah, it was to uh, Farnsworth Wright, who was the, uh, second editor of Weird Tales. He's actually, what's interesting, I don't, you probably know this, I, I think it's really interesting. Lovecraft was offered the editorship of Weird Tales, but turned it down because it meant moving to Chicago. Um, and so instead, Chicago uh, writer um, was put into that job, and his name is Farnsworth Wright. So when Lovecraft writes to Farnsworth Wright, you know, saying, uh, here's some stuff my friends insisted I submit to you for your magazine. Um, he's basically offering, he's offering his, his boss in a certain sense, who could have been him stories to put in the magazine. And whenever he gets turned down, he does, he's like, well, if they don't want me, I'll never submit there again. (laughs) Even though the stories, you know, like, you know, he's not trying to make money, but he definitely needs the money. Um, so there's, there's Mm. that, but, uh, in the quote, um, he talked, he mentions the mystery of Silmer in a particular issue as quote unquote, closest to my notion of a weird tale. He has an agenda as to what the magazine should be publishing, even though he's not the editor of it. And he's saying, you know, this was a good story, right? A good story. Mm. Um, Lovecraft liked it. It's not, you know, the one he most, you know, talks about but i can totally see why he thinks it's good and a lot of it is to do with mood um it i think if you know he was forced to rewrite this we would probably have some more cthulhu sort of uh what is that book 
book edition stuff, you know, Cthulhu Mythos style um, intertextuality, which it does have, mm-hmm. but I think it would it'd be more prominent and the uh, sort of generic nature of the of the characters who are inhabit this story uh, would be much punched up. Um, you know, like they, they would be more interesting as it is. There's college friends talking to, you know, an old college friend who was like selling farm equipment in Saskatchewan <laughs> and he yeah. seems to be a wanderer and he's considering, you know, buying real estate, but there's, he doesn't have like a serious mental condition or, I know, <laughs> like he's oh, and he, at, go for it. At the end of the story, it just sort of um, he's like, "Yep, that's the story," mm-hmm. and uh, and I guess he moves on with his life and right and uh, doesn't care anymore. Right. So um, the 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 most interesting events of the story are distanced at least by three levels. I think you mentioned. I think it might be more than that because on the very inner one is the professor who used to be the wife of the internal narrator's uh, <laughs> now well, wife, Wait. right? The, the, um, so, yeah, the, the three levels are there's us, and then this narrator is telling us about his trip right. to right. Florida, okay. where he met Esty Chapman, right. who's his old friend. Esty Chapman is married to... Was married. His wife. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, S.D. Chapman's wife was formerly married to a professor, Professor Morse, who had this experience. Right. So he's telling us about his experience with Professor Morse, and then he reads us a letter from Professor Morse. Oh, they they read it to each other, or or they take turns reading, you know, page by page, Mm -hmm. the whole thing again, which is interesting because he's already read it, right? And yeah. and and so had the wife, and that's why she's so Lovecrafty and traumatized, right? Um, she literally is like a, a character, like um, out of Cool Air, where he says, "Let me tell you why I'm I'm afraid of cold," or uh, yeah. out of Pickman's model, "Let me tell you why I'm afraid of trains." <laughs> or it would be more interesting from her perspective. Yes. Yes. That would, um, that would give it's distance. Really we're distance. She barely talks in the thing. Um, we know yeah. a lot about her because of, you know, how traumatized she is and how the story needs to be told. But she is, she is the right distance for this to be the best way of having this story told. Um, but she's basically so traumatized, we're told, that she can't. She can't really even be. You can't allude to it with her in in the room. She knows they're going to talk about it, uh, yeah. but they're not. She, it's going to traumatize her to bring up. It's like she's got PTSD, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's from reading, <laughs> not from yeah, going somewhere, right? Um, but the knowledge that yes. it exists that uh, this island and this place existed. That's right. And what it says about our place on Earth in the ecosystem and stuff, and all of that is awesome. I, I gotta I, tell you, it's super awesome. It's just very distanced from it. The more I, um, the more I, more times I've read it, the more I think that the idea of vegetation, um, having like a secret consciousness that we yep. don't comprehend or can't comprehend yep. is, uh, is really fascinating and mm-hmm. really 
creepy and and scary and and uh, there's some and truth weird. in it too and that's what's so cool is like uh, the more yeah. i think about it that i've been thinking about this for a long time but uh the more i think about it the more i think the truth isn't and one, one of the i did a show recently where i talked about a poem from like 1890 um that's what i call a cosmicism poem cosmicism has a wikipedia entry it's basically just the philosophy of hp lovecraft and how we should see the the universe basically yeah uh which is all over this story yes it is but the difference is he he's i i and i point to this is a combination of geology um the size of the universe and uh evolution those three things come together um we are not important once you understand how old the universe is how big the universe is and how we got here um you should be traumatized like lovecraft characters are right um, yep. Now these are upper class elite twits. It's it's actually <laughs> very distancing because they all have servants. They all went to university. They still have servants now. Uh, our guy who's selling farm equipment. It seems to be traveling all over the place. Um, on you know he went to Cuba, Havana. He he's been up and down both coasts of Florida. Um, and he's you know they they've got cars and boats. Right. These are very rich people. So the fact that he's yep. selling farm equipment in Saskatchewan makes me think, you know, he probably manages uh, something or owns a company or something like that. He's pretty high up there. Or if he isn't, yeah. he, he's the the poor person amongst his set of friends. These people seem relatively young, I would say, 30s, mm. may, maybe. Uh, they don't have kids, it seems, which is interesting, and that's not mentioned. And I think that's part of... Part of um, the reaction, but um, the component, the biological component of um, of this story is really important, I think, because it's something yeah. that Lovecraft doesn't really get into much. He does talk about uh, veg- vegetable life. The what's the story set in Australia? Um, the Ithian one. Shadow um, out of time. Shadow out of time. Yeah, those guys are plants, kind of. Um, and the Migo are fungi. Yeah, yeah. I believe. Yep, they're fungi. Um, they're fungi. He does, but not in the same way. Like, those are, those things are alien. Yes, they are. Um, this is very immediate. Yes. These are plants and that exist uh, around our houses. Um, the caterpillar that he mentions mm. in one scene mm-hmm. as being a sort of halfway between a plant right. and an animal. <laughs> and um, that professor is, guy is, is a Lovecraftian character, right? Yeah. He, he's obsessed. Absolutely. He finds an old book. So that's what I'm saying. There's like another level is there's this old book of, and the Indians mm. thought about this place as, you know, being like this as far, as far as I, I can tell, still is not a real place in Florida. No, but if I you take the so. name and break it into two, Sil, S Y L like Sylvan, means forest or trees or whatever, right? Oh, yeah. And then mare, mare, means water, right? And ah. so it makes sense, right? Um, that it's, it's just a simple uh, story idea name. But I was noticing on the latest uh, listen-through um, that uh, there's a c- early scene when they go into the library when the wife goes upstairs to uh, huddle near a, a bunch of lamps, I guess, Um uh, the husband goes into the bathroom and gets water, and then they come. He comes back out and they start smoking. And mm. um, 
so this is something that I am really interested in and I try and tell my students because I think it's fascinating. Um, and I was not interested in it at all, really, when I was a kid. But, uh, you know, the word drug, uh, it's, it's from, like, um, uh, the Netherlands. And it, it means, okay. uh, at its root, it means plant. And if you think about mm -hmm. it, all drugs, pretty much, are derived from plants. There are some borderline cases, like sometimes venom is used as some sort of me medical thing. And we do a lot of synthetic production of things like um, caffeine is produced from coal tar. Like, <laughs> so it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a separate process and, you know, we can get, you know, urea or, or other elements from our own pee and stuff like that. But other than, you know, going through the petrochemical process, almost all drugs are derived from plants and so I'm not a particular big drug user except for coffee. I mentioned I had too much coffee and it's made me all jittery. <laughs> um, mm. uh, caffeine is related to urea, which is what you pee, right? And mm -hmm. if you drink a lot of coffee, you have to pee more. These, uh, but what is caffeine for? It's not for humans, right? <laughs> That's not why it exists. It's an insecticide. It prevents ah, insects okay. from eating it, right? Because they die mm -hmm. if they eat it. And once you start looking into it, all spices, right? All the spices come from tropical areas. All the, you know, very ex exciting spices mm. come from places where there's a lot more insect life than there is in the colder places. You know, we have mosquitoes and stuff here, but if you go to, uh, you know, Guatemala... That's where the insect life is really happening because there's so much heat. Oh, yeah. And they're active all year. They don't go dormant. Um, so that's where the spicy stuff comes from. And all of the things we think of as drugs, uh, pretty much they're animals and plants and everything in, in a kind of war against each other all the time. And mm. to think that we, you know, we are the masters of the earth. I was thinking like one way of retelling this story would be you, t you tell it uh, as a Garden of Eden story, but from the tree's point of view. The humans are here okay. to help you distribute yourself. The humans are here. Yeah. You must tempt them. <laughs> Align yourself with the snake so that you can go forth and multiply and get some good, good uh, <laughs> sunlight. And carbon dioxide, they're, they're there to feed you. Think of them that mm. way, right? And that's the way we think of plants and animals, right? So a lot of, a lot of mysterious things are happening in the world right now, Connor. Like um, the rise of veganism. I do not understand yep. it. But I do understand that it's a real phenomenon. And it doesn't come mm. from a single ideology that somebody wrote a book and said, this is what we're doing, guys. And everybody agreed. It seems to have sprung up. And part of it is because we don't like our relationship to factory farming, right? And part of it is yep. because we're so distanced from the land life, the pr food production thing, that we can't see the horror of uh, slaughter as uh, a moral good. A natural process. A natural, a natural process, but it, we think of it as a moral evil, right? Because yes, yeah. it's killing. But 
the inevitable logic behind that starts breaking down if you look at it too simply. You can't make your cat become a vegan. It will die because it is no. a carnivore. Your dog could eat mm -hmm. only vegetables and live for a while. <laughs> but eventually, I mean, they have these natural instincts and they find them to be good. They're happy when you, you know, they're chasing birds or doing that thing. And, and we have a natural relationship with the ecosystem too. And I'm not saying we're always carnivores or anything like that. But so does everything else. So trees do communicate with each other, but it isn't on a human level where they have a language. Uh, they're more, uh, not pheromones, they're, you know, chemical. Uh, you know, you, you smell it when you cut grass, right? Yeah, you can it's, smell uh, it. They, they release that um, chemical that tells all the other grass, hey, get down. <laughs> or <laughs> something, coming, right? Something's yeah. eating us. Or, yeah. So, so flatten yourself to the ground right uh so it, it can't get you um yeah it's not communicating on a uh in a way that we would that we would even comprehend but it's a mechanism a survival mechanism that right. exists and what's so interesting is we think of like uh that that fruit in the garden of eden as an apple but um the way we do apples today it's not really it just as fruit right in the original, it's it's not clear what the fruit was. It's probably a, f a fig or something like that, um, mm. because you know they didn't, apples are northern boreal forest sort of landscape. Um, if the story's coming out of you know Middle East, the Mediterranean, Africa, yeah, yeah, it's not going to be an apple, or it, if it is, it's going to be pretty strange. Um, all apples today, the ones that we think of as you know, like the kind you buy at the grocery store. They're not actually like breeding. They're not breeding with each other and making those. They're like, what? They don't plant a uh, a tree, and then uh, you know, plant a, an apple, and then a tree grows from it. What they do instead is all cuttings. So they take a mm. apple tree of whatever variety, and then they clip off branches from the kind of apple they the cultivar it's called, and you know, glue it on there with tree glue. And it's called grafting, right? Um, yep. And that produces the kind of apple that we expect to see in the grocery store. And we think of that as an innovation we have done, right? As mm -hmm. humans. But the whole idea behind fruit doesn't make sense if you think of it only as being a human production. Because all animals that are running around that are not uh, carnivores are eating fruit. Monkeys, humans, uh, I, <laughs> all of them. Birds, right? So who's doing the, uh, the manipulation? Is it the plant? Or is it the animal that's eating it? And the answer is, it's not a one-way street. Symbiosis. It, it, or if it isn't symbio, like, it, 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 it certainly is one way of describing it, but we don't normally think of it as uh, us exploiting them and not being exploited at all, or maybe that's the way we do think of it. We think of ourselves as exploiting the the uh, apple tree and factory farming the apples on orchards, and that we have done something when, in fact, the trees are producing this stuff so that we can pass their genetic material on, even if it's not in a normal way, in a sexual reproduction way. We are still making their genes multiply. So at the core of this story, we don't actually see 
what happens, do we? Um, in what sense? In what happens to they the go to the island? They... The guy goes to the island. He gets on it. It's it's fully pined up, right? Yeah. And then he becomes he, he yeah. And then he like nope pulls himself away. He sees his lighter fall out of his jacket pocket, and he gets an idea in his head that allows him you know to save himself from the fate that all the others have had temporarily, right? Mm-hmm. And he lights the island on fire and defeats the monster, sort of. I think he isn't... Did they use the word monster in here? Or something like that, right? The thing. No. It's the thing. Yeah. Right? It's the thing. Yep, uh, I it, think it's so. a very um, Lovecraftian sort of term. Um, and then... But we don't actually see what it, what it's doing to the people, right? So these couples um, come back in boats, and they've shot themselves. Yep. Well, that's I in think, the illustration, uh, right? We we get the description of Morse when he's there. He sort of says that he sits under a tree, and he's entranced mm-hmm. by the island or by the, the trees there. And then he somehow pulls himself out of that. So in my mind's eye, he goes to the island. He's uh, um, ensorcelled. And then just basically sits there staring mm-hmm. into the forest mm-hmm. um, for hours and hours until he uh, manages to break out of the fugue. Mm-hmm. And um, but that's really like it's it's very much an internal thing. But it's it's some what sort is- of chemical attack rather than yeah uh, rather than a um, you know it grabbed him by the throat and said I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> the tree doesn't say anything, yeah. right? Um, it's a it's a kind of and so uh, we're I think we're left to infer as to what the purpose of that is, and my theory was that it, it's it's just trying to fertilize the ground with the mm-hmm. corpses of these people. It's true. Is that Possible. what you think? Well, I had a I had a different, slightly different interpretation um, on the origin uh, of this. Uh, effect that was happening on the island right Uh i had um the idea or the impression that this was just a sort of random um into what would you call it a happenstance where various factors came together that produced a particular effect on animals i that or um, that had managed to come into contact with this environment and that this was more or less um, not a, a thing that was part of a survival strategy, but it was uh, more just something that had occurred. Um, that was my impression. And I have some some stuff to say about that, okay. right? And it's parallels to things that actually exist in the real world. Please, please um, go on. Okay, so so this was my interpretation of it. Um, and I was thinking about that and thinking about, well, this is kind of ridiculous, this idea that certain places have an aura um, that is incredibly depressing or mm-hmm. distressing to people and affects them like that. But I was, uh, I was reminded, actually, of an instance um, in history that was very similar mm-hmm. uh, to this exact thing. Have you ever heard of 
the Dyatlov Pass incident. No, I don't think so. Or the the mystery of the Dyatlov Pass. Um, this was uh, in, I think, the 1950s mm-hmm. or 60s in Siberia. There was a group of hikers um, who were hiking through mountain ranges very far north, like almost in the Arctic, I think. And, um, and this was just for fun. Uh, they were doing it, and they didn't return from the trip. And when people uh, got worried about them and said, why aren't they back yet? They went out and sent an expedition, and they found their tent. The tent had been abandoned. The forensic analysis showed that the people were in the tent um, and that they had cut their way out of the tent from the inside, Hmm. right? Which is mysterious. These Mm -hmm. people were inside the tent. They cut their way out. They eventually found the bodies of all the hikers um, just distributed or spread in various directions around the tent. Um, This was in, uh, this is like 20 degrees below zero. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but we're talking snow and blizzards Mm -hmm. and and, uh, really serious um, environment. When they found them, these people uh, were didn't weren't wearing shoes and not wearing any uh, very. They weren't wearing winter coats. They were dressed as they would be when they were inside the tent, so right. just in fairly light clothing. And the mystery is why did they run and abandon their tent and then run away from it and eventually succumb to the environment and die in the snow from hypothermia. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a mystery for years and maybe still is. But I read a book about this. Mm-hmm. And one of the theories that was pr- proposed was that they were camping in a particular spot on the mountain and the high winds in the area and the exact makeup of the mountain ranges and the geography around it were creating ultra low frequency uh, waves mm-hmm. in the air. Which are um, called infrasound, mm-hmm. I think. And part of the speculation um, is that this can cause really extreme feelings of fear and dread and nausea mm-hmm. and anxiety in people. And that these hikers were just unlucky enough to be in this area and that they were in an area which was acutely affected by infrasound and they eventually panicked. They didn't know what was happening to them. They were all feeling sick and afraid for no reason. Mm-hmm. And they panicked and cut their way out of the tent and ran out into the into a blizzard and then couldn't find their way back. Um, so this is something that uh, is a bit different from the mystery of Silmer and yeah. the island in Silmer. But it's a similar thing where an almost a natural process seems to exert a kind of supernatural uh, force mm-hmm. on people who enter into that environment, and it's not explainable. Certainly, I think in the '60s we didn't know very much about infrasound, mm-hmm. so it was just completely unexplainable what happened. Um, almost like magic or some sort of an evil presence. Uh, so that's one. Par- that's a, a parallel to. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say the that there's any supernatural stuff going on in this story in in no. any view. But uh, the na- the natural part is mysterious in that it's it's uh, 
I mean, that's pretty much true of all H.P. Lovecraft stuff, too. Uh, you, you could argue Dreams it's of the Witch House. It's not supernatural. Witch House yeah. is kind of um, like that, right? And that it, it has magic, sort of. It seems yeah. to, but uh, yeah, uh, that's one it's of the implied exceptions. that it's advanced and, mathematics. Yes, more than exactly. Magic. And that and the, the dreams are caused by the shapes of the uh, of the walls, right? In the same way that this shape of the mountains in this pass would be. Um, mm. uh, but let let me read from this section here and. Because uh, it's really well done. It's quite deep into the story. Um, uh, I was thinking, like, what percentage of the story do we get actually the nested narrative become fully nested? And it's quite deep, mm. and more than halfway through. So this is uh, starting at the bottom yeah. of page 96 on the first column. This island is, and this is quoting from the journal, right, of the professor guy. This island is not greatly different from the others I had visited, except that it is heavily wooded throughout its extent. It is not large and has a general contour of an ellipse. At its southern extremity, there is a rocky headland, the extreme point of the promontory being occupied by a strangely sharp and slender pinnacle of rock, undermined by the beating sea until it is, it seems today, Sorry, until it seems to point to the sun at noonday. So this is actually, to me, this is like a feeling very much like the Grove of Ashtaroth, where you've got a sacred Mm. grove, a place that's different from the others, right? It is literally a grove island where the other ones don't have as much stuff on it. One way I was thinking of you could rewrite the story, I I think I was telling you about how I was talking to a student about how... um, what goes on in this story and how it could be rewritten uh, to make it, I don't know, more shorter and more punchier somehow so that the power of it is better, is that you have it uh, as a malevolent force so that it does its job um, in a more obvious way so people can see it. Because I think you and I are appreciating it, but everybody who just finished listening to the original story do they feel the same way you and I do if we, we've read it four times? Mm. I don't think so. I still think it's, it's, it's a little bit distant. So one of the things I was thinking is you, you get to the action a lot faster, you show what it's doing, and you, like, you put skulls everywhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you like, have. Where you have the, so this is a protection spell in a certain sense, as in a, a chemical or a pheromone, or it wouldn't be a pheromone from plants, but... Um, a chemical that puts you into a state so that you don't chop down all the trees on the island, right? That's what makes it a sacred grove. It's not that Mm. there's a goddess who lives in there and then everybody respects the goddess because they don't want to be cursed by the goddess, but rather the chemical explanation for why the grove is not to be cut down is that if you go in there, bad things happen. People don't come out. And um, Mm. we're told of six incidents of uh, people who suicided in, in in returning boats or something, or lost in the waters off this island. Um, but I was thinking about that opening image as well. I'm going to keep reading, but that opening image um, in the quote is, we could see the bodies of the youth and the girl lying in the bottom of the boat. So this boat was towed in by somebody who found it adrift, um, I believe he, the guy had shot himself, and he's wearing a army reserve, uh, or no, navy reserve uniform, right? But I was thinking, why were they out in the boat? 
Well, they're going to get married next year, we're told. And they went to the island. Why did they go to the island? To have sex. (laughs) They went there to have sex. But it doesn't say that anywhere in the story. Why did they pick that island? Because nobody can see them there. (laughs) That's why. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Because it's heavily wooded. And what do they do when they get there? They lie down on the pins, uh, the needles, right? And uh, that's why they're covered in that. But also, like, everybody's covered in these rents and cuts. And it made me think, oh, we're going to see a a pine tree monster with flailing arms that grabs people and tries to choke them. But that's actually not what happens, right? They get to the island. They get all funked out uh, and kill themselves. But the ones we're seeing are only the ones that are have gotten away from the island before they killed themselves, right? Yeah. So the rest of the place has to be well fertilized with the bodies of all these people that have been coming there over the years. Now, I have I don't know how you run the numbers on this <laughs> and such, but the Indians knew about it, we're told. What do you think sure. about what do you what do you think about that theory? Um what that the Indians knew about it? Or no, no, that's I think uh, this, established this different in the story. way of writing the story. Uh, oh yeah, and just thinking like making it more explicit as to like the, like I I I had to come to this conclusion I think probably on my second reading or third reading mm. to realize that that's why they had gone to the island is to have sex. Oh yeah, um, I didn't even come to that conclusion. I uh, <laughs> I didn't think that because they they talk like, about oh, how they, they had no reason to want to not get married uh the families were for it right and they're a rich couple um yeah uh the sons in the navy reserves the girls um you know amongst this community um they're in a a boat that they own right so it's it's not this is a uh so the reason they're out there is to be away from the places that would frown upon them consummating the act before they actually get married next year Sure, and that, that and that's why nobody talks about it either, right? Nobody shares like there's this great spot to have sex. They just go out in the yeah. boat and they find a spot that's well, you know, hidden. Um, so I, yeah, I may be overreading that, but no, I, I don't think you are. I think that uh, that definitely makes sense um, as as a motivation for why they were out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I. I definitely agree with you need to make the island a little bit more menacing or um, they they do have that foreshadowing or not foreshadowing, but the, uh, the classic backstory of, Mm -hmm. um, of uh, the native Americans. I have that right here. Let me, let me read that. Uh, It's on the same page. Then as if arranged by fate came the finding of the old book. That's, best part of the story so far it was an odd volume of the colonial period containing a legend which assigned a haunted island to our bay an island that the red men who had lived here for centuries could could in no wise be induced to visit i assume that the tradition had something to do with the present mystery you are correct sir okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) um i'm gonna just continue reading this um this section because i think this is the heart of the story and it's also like it's really well written. This is the mood part of the story that I think is is at its best, whereas I think the setup takes a bit of time to it sort of lessens the impact. It's almost an hour. It's not quite an hour, but it's long yeah. for a story of this um, material, I would say. Well, I, like yeah. not to interrupt you or break your train of thought, mm-hmm. but the setup is 
pretty crummy, I think. It's like they're like these men of leisure who uh, go to country clubs and crap like that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and then they meet each other. It was like what it needs to happen is that whole first part where they meet each other and then go to his house and chat and stuff sort of just needs to be cut out and it needs to jump right to um, either Estelle telling the story, saying this is what happened, or just to something more immediate because it distances us too far from the action and it's too, and it just gets off to a slow start. So I, I, if he if he just cut to like after dinner, we went into the library. That would actually yeah. speed it up quite a bit. But there's still some lag in between that and the actual internal, internal, internal story. Yeah. So that, that's what I'm. Uh, what I was also saying is that we've got this book that somebody wrote, right? Um, yeah. That the cur- not the colonel the. Um, the uh, professor had found, and that's what led him to it, right? And he wrote this note afterwards, after he kills himself, or right before he kills himself. Um, and these characters are reading it, and the friend had read it before, and the girl had read it before, and now we're all getting it from this this uh, narrator's point of view, the Saskatchewan farm equipment salesman, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that, all that distancing is is poor, but what I love... I love framing devices. I think they're wonderful, especially like this in books. You know, my, one of my favorite stories is the Oval Portrait. It's mostly a frame for a guy picking up a book and reading a tiny story about, you know, a very tiny story about one of the paintings that he's looking at while he's, he's insane uh, because of a wound that's in him, right? It's a very, very fun story. And most of that story is the o- opening frame. But that's also only two mm. or three pages long, whereas this one is, I don't know, 30 Maybe not. 20? Yeah, it's about 30. It's pretty long. Um, yep. So this is the core, this part right here. Um, this is the core of what we're seeing. And it's very, I would say it's very well written. I think Lovecraft would have done it even better. Um, but let me just read that part here, here again. Um, the extreme point of the promontory being occupied by a strangely sharp and slender pinnacle of rock undermined by the beating seat until it seems to the point to the sun at noonday. This singular formation and the deep gloom beneath the woods of the island lent it a distinctly weird and eerie aspect. When I entered the dark wood after beaching the boat, I had to stoop and creep to avoid thickets of dead branches that clothed the lower portions of all the trees. As I penetrated deeper and even deeper into the death-like stillness of the forest, the darkness became as dense as that of a dimly lit cave. A great loneliness depressed me as I stooped, stopped from time to time and stood in the vast dim silence, tensely listening to the beating of my own heart. The sense of guidance that had taken possession of me in the boat still had me in its keeping. So this is a wonderful because it's, I think, this is the transition where we start to realize, oh, maybe he isn't doing this. Maybe the tree is doing this to him. Mm. Oh, and I'm saying it's a tree rather than six trees or a hundred trees or whatever, right? My course through the wood was in no sense a search. Rather, it was a toilsome passage to a definite point, which a strange assurance told me I would neither fail to find nor fail to know when I came to it. It's all, uh, it's like, I feel like it's emitting a chemical sense, but it's, you yeah. got that through the book, Right. And, mm. and through the mystery, which is really interesting. I, I at last ran onto a small circular rift in the forest and stopped on its verge as suddenly as though I'd, it had been a precipice. And there actually is a precipice at the other end of the island, right? 
Uh, and then he goes on. The weird gloom that hung above the carpet of the dead pine needles in the wood here broke into a half-light that was like a thick mist in color and op- opaqueness. Through it was a high noon. Uh, not a ray of sunlight penetrated either the forest or the rift by which I stood, strangely moved, as if at some hellish shrine I sank to the ground with my back against a tree. So this is the renting, I think, right? I glanced mm-hmm. down at my hands. They were scratched and bleeding from the tiny wounds made by the sharp points of the dead branches, which they had come in contact. So he's the one who's grabbing the trees and defending him his body against the trees rather than the trees, you know, flailing arms like I was anticipating. I could feel similar abrasions on my face. Already I bore the uncanny sign with which the evil genius of this baleful death spot marked its victims. My eyes fell on two slight indentations in the thick bed of pine needles under a double tree at my feet. Between the two depressions in the litter lay a little heap of fir boughs from which the tips had been removed. So what, what, is, what, is this, uh, what is this about? Somebody brought back the tips of the fir boughs, right? Yeah. Uh, well, um, the, uh, the two, the young couple who go there, mm-hmm. she, um, the girl has one of the clues as to which island it is, is that she has a little bag, which mm-hmm. is full of, some pine needles, which I suppose I'm meant to, they have a nice scent. So you collect them and mm-hmm. put them, uh, in a pillow mm-hmm. to make it nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this is just the end of that thread of, okay. Uh, yeah, she it, went sa- there it, it and- says that the next line is it was the discard from Ulta Klein's pillow exclamation point. I knew from that, if nothing else that I had found the thing I sought. Yep. Yep. The trees about the rift were very old, with knotted, gnarled, and misshapen trunks. Now we know they're evil. Their dead lower branches gleamed like whitened bones through the gray light of the place, and surmounted by their gray, green tops suggested life superimposed on death, ever-growing, ever-dying. That is totally a Lovecraftian line, right? Mm. That layering and layering of rock... Where you, you, every time you go down a layer and you look at the stuff that's in there, you find fossils, right? Mm-hmm. And they're built on top of fossils, and they're built on top of fossils, and they're built, it goes all the way down, right? It's, it, so looking at the earth, we think, of, oh, it's a living thing. All this beautiful blue water with fish in it, and all these green trees, everything's glowing, growing and alive. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's like a fungus that. growing on the dead earth, right? This dead corpse yeah. of the earth that's just layer upon layer of death. Um, so it's, this isn't like he's realizing something false. He's realizing something real, but is it caused by the plants on the island or is it caused by just the, as you're saying, you know, the, the shape of the land and, uh, a natural non-biological phenomenon? Well, the professor's whole thing is they're sentient, right? Trees are communi- or plants are communicating or... They have minds and they have goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me read a little more here. This is really fun stuff. Um, While I was musing on this thought, I became conscious of a sound. It was like the self-made murmur one hears in the silence of a cavern. But, <laughs> I love that. He's making the sound in the cavern. And <laughs> he thinks it's a something outside of him, but then he recognizes it. So this is really cool. But seemed to come from the upper part of the rift as though the sound of the sea. 
by some freak of acoustics, was caught and repeated by the mystic cleft in the forest. So we can imagine mm. it almost looks like a guitar or something, right? This is a resonance chamber. And repeated yeah. by the mystic cleft in the forest, the soft mill-like murmur had come creeping on my senses unawares. But once I had taken note of it, I was never afterward able to disregard it. The sense of isolation was appalling. The gloom of the wood and the gray of the rift cast a deep depression on me. And in the pulseless monotone that filled the place, there was all the haunting sadness of the night's wind moan. The voice of the forest man's earlier lullaby, and this is really cool too, the voice of the forest man's earliest lullaby has ever affected him deeply, imbuing him with a religious fervor, abasing him in awe and fear. The druid's oak with its prayers and sacrifice. The African's hallowed fetish wold, W-O-L-D. The sylvan shrine of the South Sea savage. All are remnants of an ancient kinship between man and tree that still appeals through the subtle and uh, desuet. D-E-S-U-E-T-E? What's that? Desuet, I think, is... um, I can't remember. I had to look it up. Um, Desuet Avenues of the Soul. Let's look it up. Okay. How do you spell it? D-E-S... Oh, it's French, looks like. Um, It's D-E-S-U-E-T-E. Yeah, it's only coming up in French. Uh, search English results uh, about translation. Translate this page. Disuse. Disuit. Uh-huh. Adjective. Where's the English translation? Obsolete. Yeah. Obsolete. Mm. Okay. Outdated. Antiquated. Yeah. So what did he describe as being desolate? Again? Uh, I'll read that sentence again. Um, the Druid's Oak with its prayers and sacrifice, the African's hallowed fetish wall, the sylvan shrine of the South Sea Savage, all are remnants of an ancient kinship between man and tree that still appeals through the subtle and desuate avenues of the soul. So the unused avenues, the obsolete avenues. That is also a uh, excellent, like, oh, yeah. um, he, he's tying it very much to that, like, primitive, mm-hmm. uh, um, like almost like when Morse enters this thing, he's kind of regressing mentally as yes. to the mental state of his ancestors. It's great. It's a, a very atavistic. This is the part Lovecraft was like, oh, this is a story for me, I think. Um, yep. We continue. Uh, but I attribute the unique power of this strange spot on the island possessed to a much older kinship, a brotherhood dating clear back to life's dim beginnings when the animal and vegetable forms were identical in their common ancestry. To me, this vengeful death trap seems nothing less than the ruing, R-U-I-N-G, of the part of the trees that constitute it. Of an old, old bargain. I love this. An ancient Mm. covenant tacitly made by first life, when the materials it found here required a division of method from their utilization and the primitive forms drew apart into two classes, the plants remaining fixed and insentient, securing their sustenance in one spot, the animal forms developing mobility in search for food, along with its parallel consciousness. Uh, uh, This is wonderful, right? This Mm. is as good uh, ideas and description 
is super good. Uh, I'm going to continue because it's so good. It is a sure thing that each of the these divisions of life still retains in suppressed form the characteristics of the other. Rather, of its own disused half, plants retain the sex character while many animals are sexless. Oh, interesting. The fungus remains in one spot yet feeds on alimentation. Some animals have lost their power of movement, have vegetated, while others possess the leaf's power of direct fixation of carbon. Man, uh, carbon, man. <laughs> See, this is why I'm thinking is like, this is the, why they have to die on the island is because it's, it's to make fixed carbon into the air for <laughs> fixed fix nutrients <laughs> into the earth here. Uh, while others possess the leaf power of direct fixation of carbon, man, highest of all animals, loses both sentiency and volition in catalepsy and kindred states. So we become like plants when we're asleep, right? While insectivorous mm -hmm. plants have clearly developed both mobility and consciousness. So he's talking about, you know, Venus flytraps, etc., right? And that, that's what, how I see the whole island as being like a Venus flytrap. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's again yes. why they're why they're there is it's there to protect itself from the thing that would otherwise eat it and use that as a resource. So Venus flytraps don't eat and they're actually from Florida too, right? Um they don't eat uh the materials in the same way we do by digesting them, but they do use the materials of the thing that they kill as a part of their process of uh, creating sugars for themselves, right? So mm. it is a kind of, uh, it's like a very primitive on and off sort of sentience. It's like, oh, I've been triggered. Um, this thing dies, and that gives me nutrients in bad soil. Um, mm. And so it... I mean, the author here knows what he's talking about a little bit, uh, but he's also overstating it to make it a fun story, I think. Uh, I'm going to continue to see how far I go this awesomeness. The, thus, I could go on at great length to convince you that the attributes of animal life merely slumber in the plant and that they often are reawakened. No rational explanation of the wood spell presents itself save that the old trees on the verge of the rift during the centuries of arrested growth forced on them by sterile soil has devoted their idle eons to developing their sleeping consciousness that they thought they though defeated in their efforts to attain mobility itself had yet achieved preternaturally some measure of mobility's parallel mentality or at least a weird power of suggestion which they were able to employ in such strange telepathic way on such as fell in their great and terrible web so I, I guess this is the point where I was like, this is awesome. And I started thinking of like how to tell the story in a more like um, way that can get people's brains fired up the way mine is fired up by getting to this point in this otherwise sort of slow story. Um, I was mm -hmm. telling you about there's this island off the coast of Romania that changed hands during World War II. And it's, it's, not, it's, it's sterile soil. Nobody really lives there, but there was a submarine base or whatever. Um, and it's also an island... Um, in Jason of the Argonauts, because this is, the Black Sea is like a, you know, uh, part of the story of the Golden Fleece and all that. And people talk mm -hmm. about the Golden Fleece as being a metaphor, right? Because it's not really a sh sheep don't have gold fleece. 
Uh, so there's theory that, you know, it's like a fleece used to collect gold out of like, uh, like placer style gold out of, out of, uh, rivers flowing into the black sea and stuff like that i'm like i don't know about that but what i do know is that uh there was a temple on this island to one of the gods and uh then it was abandoned mysteriously and i'm like this is sounds like an awesome setting for a story it's got nazis it's got soviets it's got jason and the argonauts it's got a god right all you need to do is, is you put a tree on it and you and you get some <laughs> uh, you get some Rus, some Russian uh, Viking guys, right? Doing their explorations, they got a uh, I don't know descendant Greek population that tell them don't go there. Um, but there's mm-hmm. this there's and you make it slightly different, make it a more clear. Instead of like fertilizing the land, you make it like our relationship we have to wine. Whereas you know we drink wine and it makes us rowdy and say things we shouldn't say. It affects our minds, um, but uh, that's because of the turning of the thing that's sweet, the sugars, into alcohol, which is a a process that can is independent of of uh, plants themselves. It's just uh, when you have oxygen, you have fermentation, and you have uh, the things that make fermentation happen, like um, uh, the fungus. What's it called? Baking yeast, right? Um, uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, th- this is how we get, you know, there's theories as to where wine and beer and stuff came from. But um, the thing that is, it, it's always plant-based, right? There's no alcohols that are animal-based. So mm-hmm. given that you've got this idea of a, of a, a commodity, a wine, a, um, like, you know, the way silk uh, comes out of China, right? You've got this commodity that that people want and can't get in the place that they are. So they they're willing to pay anything for it. You have some sort of uh, magical wine, quote unquote, except it's not magical. It's just, you know, extreme, but it compels uh, people who have it in its too pure form to do things like go find the source of it. And it's there instead of chopping down the trees on this Island to make firewood when they're camping, it makes them chop each other down, right? Okay. And so the idea is that you go there, as our professor does, he goes there alone. Um, But it seems like at least some of the people were going in couples, right? Mm. Of the six people were going in couples. And we don't know how many people have gone there, but the the red man doesn't go there because they, they have a taboo against it because, you know, it's dangerous. Uh, Mm. these uh, modern white settlers go there because they don't know any better and people don't have this taboo. Hence, maybe this story's existence is to say, don't go to that island where I didn't specifically say, but it's the third one (laughs) (laughs) off the east, uh, west coast of Florida, right? Northern Florida. Yeah. He's really got something here. Yeah, I agree with you. I think... um Especially the stuff that you read out is uh, is gold. It's mm-hmm. just uh, fantastic, and I think um, even though like the foreshadowing is good, um, that's really it's quite way- good. It's too long though. Somehow, yeah, right? yeah, um, yes, it it is too long. Um, and so in in this hypothetical story of about this Romanian island, right? You're yeah. saying okay, you've got some Rus um, who you're saying. 
this island produces uh, something that people Sacred, want. So they go there. Yeah, so Dionysus's island or whatever. And there's just there's a bunch of people who in the so as you I was listening to your ending again, and it reminded me of exactly what so what Lovecraft was saying in this essay that you uh, you read was that yeah. you need to make for your story you need to make an exact timeline and then you pick the place to so you know the beginning middle and end of everything that happens in the area and then you need to pick the yep. right place to begin telling the story and it isn't at the beginning mm-hmm. right uh, he doesn't say yes, that but rarely. it isn't at um, the beginning you you pick the spot and then go back so in the case of this story i was thinking of the biggest stumbling block is i've never been to the black sea <laughs> And I'd be doing all my research online, and I know if I did it, it would suck, because I just don't have that. I, I, I would want it to be a lot better than it could be, based on the fact that and I don't, you know, I don't speak Romanian. I'm just reading Wikipedia entries, right? Um, but mm-hmm. the, the, that kind of experience, um, like, I have no doubt that uh, Hugh Irish, whoever he may be, and we can speculate a bit about who that is, um, was uh, a visitor to this place, this area of Florida. Um, yeah. Because he, he describes the landscape quite a bit, and the fact that he's got this pine area, maybe there's no pines in that part of Florida, but that doesn't matter because it's all part of his setup, and maybe he got caught up in the wrong place or part of the story, and that's why it feels like it's a little bit off. Maybe he doesn't have enough yeah. personal family trauma... <laughs> In order to make it feel compelling in the way that um, Lovecraft always makes his stories way more compelling than this. Uh, so, well, yeah, I was, um, yeah, I was just saying that basically I don't know where this story could start. But the farther you go back in time, the harder it is to get the details right. Like, I know 2021 pretty well. I know 1980s yeah. fairly well. Right? Um, and I know 1919, and I know uh, you know 1927 uh, fairly well from reading magazines. But the farther you back you go back in time and and space, the more difficult our access to it is. So if we were tell to tell this story today with with jets and you know nuclear powered submarines and stuff, I think you could get lost in the storytelling. In a way that setting it in a period like this, you know, how people like to set s- stories in a period, because it seems easier. I don't know where that story could best be told. I'm, I'm compelled to say World War II because you got Nazis, but that's kind of distracting from the point, right? The point is, is at, the, at the core of the idea is a biological phenomenon. That we're proposing that you know trees bear fruit in a way that makes them dangerous and valuable. Our relationship yes. with them is not us exploiting them, but rather some sort of strange combination. So why is it that this kind of place, if it is the trees as opposed to a natural phenomena of the island, right in Silmare, I'm saying. Why is it that those trees have not taken over North America? Were they uh, remnants that were cut down? No evidence for that in the story. Or is it a natural yeah, phenomenon? Um, I think... He, he talks a lot about 
this sort of uh, resonance of sound mm-hmm. in the island mm-hmm. and in the way they've grown up. And I and I still like I, I got the impression of the start, and I still had the impression that this is just a um almost like a a fluke. Like I know that he's saying that mm-hmm. these trees are struggling towards consciousness. Yes, and this is sort of their attempt at this. But I would like with my more modern mindset towards mm-hmm. evolution as being evolution is a series of flukes and thumb, some things stick. Yep. Stuff's just getting thrown against the wall and some things find a niche and keep going. Um, to me, it's sort of like this, all the factors were right in this area and, and uh, people or animals wander into this area and die and fertilize the trees in a way that it couldn't before. Mm-hmm. Um, or that they couldn't have survived without it, just like a Venus flytrap, mm-hmm. you were saying, if there's poor soil. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's sort of um, where it ends. But although Hugh yeah, Irish does... He burns it down. And that's why I'm, I'm comparing it to that um, John Buchan story, The Grove of Ashtaroth, because um, it's a fa- it, it was having a negative effect on a friend of the narrator, right? Uh, you've read that story? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, no? Yes, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's set in South Africa, Rhodesia. Um, the main character is a friend, an English friend of a uh, an Englishman who's uh, Jewish background, um, and who's set up a estate in Rhodesia. Um, he, mm-hmm. he expects to see him all fine. When he gets there, his friend's in a terrible state, and it has to do with the goddess Ashtaroth, <laughs> whose last grove on planet Earth. Is happens to be this far south in, you know, Africa. It's the last um, gate to accessing her. It's the last of the places where her influence and the doves that are associated with her are there, and it affects the the friend of the narrator because he's Jewish and there's some sort of connection there. It's a little bit racist, but the important part is. The friend, the narrator, decides that in order to save his friend, he needs to blow up, dynamite the grove. And he does that and kills, kills it off, right? Now, if, that is the, if, the, if this is a parallel story, but without the supernatural goddess element, um, that it's a natural evolution uh, of, you know, just a circumstances. And this is where, you know, a new species would branch off that could eventually take over the mainland and uh, conquer the earth Triffid style, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but by having people do the planting, um, mm. that then this is kind of a horror story for uh, a, a moral horror story in the same way that Grove of Ashtaroth is. He feels dirty, the narrator does, at the end of that story for having, you know, destroyed the last shrine of a goddess. He, you know, he yep. thinks what he did was wrong. Even though, you know, he felt compelled to do it. He's, he wanted to save his friend. He wanted to save his friend, but it was wrong and it was wrong to do so. Which is, you know, crazy interesting. Um, here, he burns the place down and he goes and visits it again um, to see, or I guess our, our outer narrator, uh, second level narrator, uh, went to visit it and he found it to be an ash, ashy island, right? That, mm. that it was... Um, but if we think of this story as like a Venus flytrap story, but as the island 
and the plant life on the island as a whole, rather than one particular tree, then uh, it couldn't be replicated very easily, right? They couldn't... No. Yeah, it w- couldn't really spread. It's, and in ca- which case, you're killing, like, the last dinosaur, or the first dinosaur yeah. or something, right? Yes. Um, I think... Hmm. It, it's... Um, looking at this how this sort of island or this effect developed from the point of evolution, this is a dead end, yes. right? This, there's no way for this, um, this effect or these trees to reproduce themselves. And the reason is that human beings are too smart and they have fire, right? If right. this was in a prehistoric world with our humans um, or just a very like um, sort of maybe – just apes not yet developed um, higher cognition. Um, it would still work because apes would and animals would still blunder into here and die like a Venus flytrap, and then it really could propagate. But but notice, um, and this is something you know. I was thinking how Evan would read this, right? Um, if if you think of it like what does he call it? Um, uh, it's knowledge of the people bottom-up knowledge so the local mm-hmm. people who are indigenous to the place Understand they don't burn it. it down they just say we don't go there it's taboo don't well, go there wh- whoever has to whoever can burn it down i suppose you could just hang out off the shore and throw a torch onto there and and burn it down that way right but, um but morse uh he goes there he discovers it and then he has to he sacrifices himself well not intentionally but he's like i'm i'm screwed I'm going to burn it down while I still but can. But this uh, this chemical funk, <laughs> or, or is it a chemical funk? If it's not, if not, if it's, if if they're doing like psychic rays on him, it's never explained, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's long lasting enough so that he gets home <laughs> and goes into his library, gets his pen out, gets a oh no, it's a typewriter, I think, right? Um, and he types up. Oh no, maybe it wasn't. It's a. I think it's a pen because his writing gets kind of yes. lazy towards yes, the there end. Yes, there was there was something the about world. a. Uh, a a writing machine or something earlier, but you're right. It does have a script, it, 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 which is a very Lovecraftian ending too, right? Well, the window, is, the window. <laughs> well, th- this is almost the perfect because Lovecraft is always like, like if you think of Dagon or something, mm-hmm. it's like, oh no, mm-hmm. the hand on the door, mm-hmm. and I'm still writing and I can't believe it. It, yeah. it doesn't add up because oh, nobody wonderful. in a dangerous, <laughs> a dangerous situation would continue writing in their diary. <laughs> but in this story, it's, it's a like suicide. He has, yeah. Yeah, he has a limited amount of time. He's like, I'm overcome by these feelings. I know I'm I'm not going to be able to uh, continue living. I'm going to succumb to this crushing with this depression. knowledge, though. Right? That's the thing. Yeah, is, is that if uh, this is the, you know, people quote it all the time for Lovecraft explainers. Um, the oldest emotion of mankind, right, is fear. Whatever, whatever the quote is. Um, Oh, no, no, that's from supernatural horror and literature, isn't it? Are you but, thinking of uh, man lives in a pleasant island? Yes. Yes, that's in exactly. A sea of you got it. Or something like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Call of Cthulhu opening. People well, this it is. All the time. I wrote down the quote from this story um, Any view that gives us crushing realization of our unimportance to the whole is not good for us. Mm. We, are, we must remain unconscious of the whole. Um, the, the sort of cosmic perspective um, of our own unimportance is just too much to bear. Right. Um, 
and so and one, and once you've had your eyes opened there's no going back you've um you can't unsee yeah, right? it's very um, similar to listen uh, the most merciful thing in the world i think is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents we live in an, a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity and it was not meant that we should voyage far so that's actually talking i think about um two things it's talking about our 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 level of grasp of how big the universe is, which is very small, um, mm. and our level level of grasp on how old the universe is, which is very small. And if we put those things together, um, then we become depressed and suicidal. Yep. And the thing is, is I I mean, I think it's more. <laughs> You know, I, I think it's more to do with like seasonal affective disorder, right? Like <laughs> he's got a really bad case yeah. of the glooms here, right? Um, than it is, I think, a, a particular knowledge because the knowledge here is that oh, plants and animals used to be similar, and we made a bargain, uh, each going in our own direction, and now the bargains, the faith is broken. It, 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 it's almost, and it, he doesn't do this in the story, right? It isn't. Uh, hearkening back, like I was saying, to the Bible, where you've got the 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 deal was broken. God said, "Don't eat of the tree of knowledge," and then humans did, and now the tree is really pissed off. It's like the tree mm. is eating of the humans now, right? You're yeah. you're doing our stuff. You're not supposed to do that, you bastards. <laughs> you're breaking yeah, the covenant. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't do he doesn't go that way, but it is readable that way. I think. But I, I guess yes. it's because they're upper upper class elites. Um, I feel like the explanation for why they're killing themselves is is it's more like they they're just you know they're like fail sons of <laughs> rich people. They're like You're like what fail? You, you haven't heard of fail son? <laughs> no, what's that? Oh, you know Hunter Biden. Um, he's a fail son. Nope. Oh, he's the pre- oh, president. He's, he's a son who failed. Yeah, they're called fail sons, right? Like they like rich and powerful sons. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you grow up. Don't. You grow up in an elite household. The thing is, is they don't actually come from an elite household, right? The Bidens are a bit different, but but they're directionless, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're they have, uh, you know, the reason he joined. I'm, this is really funny because it sounds really political, but it's just facts, right? The reason mm. he joined the Ar- uh, Naval Reserve is because he needs to have a political career like his dad, right? Sure. Because his other son, uh, Biden's other son, died. And it's a good way to get credibility is to, you know, be in the Navy. So um, he forces, joins the, yeah. yeah, so he joins the Naval Reserve. Um, it gets an appointment, even though he didn't go to the academy or have any real training. And he fails at that. Right, he he he's doing drugs instead because you know he's directionless and he's a rich boy. He's, in a certain sense, yeah. <laughs> and 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 it's not. But the thing is, you know, he also also has tragedy in his life. So I don't want to put it too much on. Oh, uh, I'm yeah. just saying this okay. is. I'm not saying this is particularly uh, a Hunter Biden story. I'm just saying it's like that. It, these are a bunch of rich people who, the reason they have their job. Right, the reason this guy's in the naval reserve is not because he's more competent than the Indians that live in the forest that's nearby. <laughs> it's because his parents are in the position to allow them to inveigle that. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. The reason you get to be vice president of the United States when you got you know no support is not because 
you are the most competent person. It's because there's like a level of failing upwards that's astounding. And and it, in a certain sense, I, I feel like that explains a lot more of, you know, sort of the drug use and sort of psychological problems of the of the elites children mm. than it then does you know knowledge that we used to be uh, <laughs> we had a covenant with plants yes yeah <laughs> which is really funny because they're not really uh, uh, related at all like you you tell you know one of these fail sons or fail daughters uh you know the universe is immense <laughs> it's so big you can't imagine they're like oh yeah that's real nice don't care <laughs> yeah <laughs> because they they're not engaging with the the meaning of it in because perhaps they're like the plants they're not sentient enough in a certain sense right and I'm not saying you know it's a, a racism thing at all I'm just saying like there there's this problem with people not uh being excited about the right things you should be excited mm. about how big the universe is it should it should traumatize you in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. And yet it doesn't, right? We th- we thought it would. Like, oh, God's dead. Ah, uh, I guess I'm transgender now. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem any. Like, there's no. Um, there's no sudden realization that shakes humanity in the way that uh, that uh, it does for Nietzsche. Right? <laughs> when he, the mm. guy runs down the streets. God's dead, and we killed him. <laughs> And everybody yeah. like the streets don't go mad with insanity at the at the truth. Um, it's more like yeah, there's a comet coming to hit the earth. And uh, uh, did you see that new Netflix special? <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know. I don't know the way to retell this idea in a way that is more attractive than I. The way Hugh Irish has done it, but I, I know I that do. it could be done. Okay, tell me. Okay, so th- but it involves changing the story quite a bit. Okay. Um, okay. In in some ways, first off, I think the the knowledge of this kind of plant human covenant, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of the horror element, is um, uh, I think doesn't quite work. I think what the horror should be is. Um, here's how I would just is uh, his draft number two or three of rewriting the mystery of Silmer. Um, we start off with Professor Morse. He's saying, "Oh my God, I need to tell you this story because I don't have long. Right? I only have a few hours to get this information down before I'm lost." He tells us this story. We, we it happens um, just as in his letter. He goes to the island. The island has a slightly different effect, like you said. Now with this God. We'll have the island like it's uh, a giant Venus flytrap. There are human skulls. It, clearly, people have been coming here and dying for centuries. Mm. Um, but the effect that the island has is the same of cosmic horror. But it is about shifting a human being's consciousness, right? Instead of having – I'm not sure what you would call it the, – uh, the regular human consciousness – um, of I am me being myself, this island can kind of change your consciousness to be more of a plant mm. consciousness, mm-hmm. which is perhaps more aware of uh, the entirety of existence or the universe is, is more that cosmic horror perspective. And whether that's through 
pheromones or some other influence, once somebody visits this island, that process begins to take place mm. and they begin to almost vegetize. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, that's, human- a, that's a story by uh, Philip K. Dick <laughs> called oh, Piper in the Woods. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yes, you know this I one? know this one. And it's good, yeah, right? Everyone but it, becomes, it is uh, never explained. The sun. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, so, and I, I didn't realize until relatively, I, I invited my friend, um, Jason Thompson, who we're going to get on again, by the way. Um, he, mm-hmm. he was on another podcast this weekend, so he's not available and he's a new father, etc. Anyways, um, he's a big plant monster guy. And I'm like, I'm not that into plant monsters, but I started reading them a lot more since I, I'm finding them. And I'm like, Oh, here's a plant monster story. And, uh, this is a really good plant monster story, but it isn't like a, particular monster it's the mm. it's the as you say i think it is better to be read rather than as this individual tree on this island that's doing this as a collective uh it's almost uh algernon blackwood style um uh, yeah you know a collective of <laughs> evil trees <laughs> and exactly. they're not evil they're just doing their thing right um yeah. So if if we think of these like there's I've read stories where there's mad scientists you know they're trying to make trees evil <laughs> and then there's alien plants right there's all sorts of different kinds but this one I think it goes in the right direction as you say makes it makes I mean it really that is what it's they're doing is making them like plants in that they don't move anymore right mm. they, they yeah, stop they- moving they root themselves out. dead. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they're not absorbing the sunlight, so they're going to die. The um the Philip K Dick story, I think it's I don't think it's a horror like it's not a horror story, but Doesn't I would feel want, like one. No. But I would want this to be like I uh I don't think so much like Professor Morse is becoming a plant or people who encounter the island become plants whereas they sit down and don't do anything else, but simply that they've that they go mad. This understanding the world more from a plant's perspective or from this kind of um, understanding of the cosmos and its infinity is just too much for the human mind. And so as, and once it's kind of, once they've got that idea into their heads, it just propagates Mm. until it consumes their normal human consciousness. And so Professor Morse goes to the island, he gets kind of, um, hit psychically blasted <laughs> right yeah. his sanity gets blasted he goes home he says oh my god i burned down the island um i've got to write down this story i don't have too much longer to live and i'm i can feel my consciousness is fading mm. right now you as the reader beware ah, because right. even though this is just a one instance of this primordial forest that had this ability that is no longer um all over the world, like it m- what might have been once, beware because pockets of this still may exist in nature, undiscovered, and you may stumble upon one mm. and be doomed, like I'm doomed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the plants, I think you, and I then think he ends. M- maybe end with uh, the the outer narrator um, getting a the fire axe up. and <laughs> yeah, something like that. And, uh, yeah, he's burning down the forest, and that's why there's forest uh, forest fires raging all over the world. Um, yeah. I, if you're doing it modern day, you could do it as like an email <laughs> or tweet or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's another story uh, that that is kind of like this as well by Philip K. Dick. Uh, I don't know if you've read it, but it's terrific. It's called "Of Withered Apples." It, it it's kind of oh, weird. Um, 
because it has other stuff going on, like Philip K. Dick's stories do too. But you read that one. It's about a girl uh, who's married. Her husband is tre- treats her like a child, and the father-in-law is there, and they're always talking about taxes at the dinner table. But she's she's she wants to go out and play with her tree, <laughs> and like there's a tree on a farm in the backyard, sort of off over a hill. And she goes and talks to it, and it talks to her, and it's only got, like, it's a dying tree on a rocky, rocky, um, you know, bad land. That's why the farm's been abandoned. You know the story? Um, I haven't read it, but I think you've told me about it. Okay, yeah, it's really good. Um, so she she has this sort of one-sided conversation with the tree, and she says, no, and we're like, what? And it uh, she runs away from it, but it throws an apple after her. One of the withered apples uh, on its mm-hmm. tree branch, and for uh, undeclared but you know sort of inferable reasons, I guess sort of um, she picks it up and eats it on the way home, um, and then uh, they call. We find out they called the doctor, and then we're at the funeral <laughs> of the woman of the woman, right? And. Uh, doctor, the husband, the father-in-law are like, the strangest thing we've ever seen. Appendicitis. Um, died. She, she, we found the remains of an apple in her stomach. Um, she ate the seeds. And, um, and then uh, we, cut mm. to this, we cut to the graveyard like a year later, uh, the next spring. And there's an apple growing, apple tree growing out of her corpse, out of her coffin. Mm. And it's like, now it's got fertilized... Uh, earth right so it's like a fable or something it's 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 a very strange you know it's hard to classify what's going on in the story but it isn't a weird tale in the sense of this is with the brooding atmosphere lovecraft style right it's a yeah it's a uh very hard to classify kind of philokitic style fantasy which are basically like him doing hansel and gretel stories but with you know a a guy comes home from a college campus or his hometown sees a couple he knew then and they're married and they have a son and the son is actually a duck. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because the sun God is his father and that is Zeus. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it's like, and it's, this- it's just a, like it, it, explaining it as a science fiction story. makes no sense at all. Explaining it mm. as a fantasy story doesn't really make sense because, you know, it's not wizards and spells and stuff. It's Zeus impregnated a lady from the suburbs in the 1950s. Um, mm-hmm. And we know this because when the friend said, that reminds me of uh, <laughs> of the poem Later in the Swan, and the girl gets really upset. And then at the end <laughs> of the story, at the end of the story, um, the father-in-law, or the father, sorry, the... Uh, husband who's not the father of the child wants to have a like a birthday party with his son and he surprises him with a birthday cake and the kid doesn't want to eat cake <laughs> and he says well what do you want to eat and i says i can't tell you <laughs> like well that's really weird well well, well how, show me then show me so he they go out in the yard and uh they're having like a little tea party sort of thing and the dad looks into his cup to see what the kid has given him to eat and it's a spider Okay. <laughs> He's a duck. <laughs> what can I tell you? 
right? Yeah. So, like, uh, you can't read that as, like, a covenant <laughs> with uh, no, no. anything, right? It's just, like, it's just a, a – it's, like, weird paranoia. Whereas the, this story is it, – it is trying to nail a real truth about, you know, evolution and where mm. life came from. Um, but it, it's kind of got the wrong – uh, people in the audience for it. Um, I I, I want to remind you before we. I don't know when you're you have till, but I I want to remind you. I sent you a file, um, a PDF called uh, "In the Case of Bradner." I just finished processing this right before we started talking. Oh, um, uh, cool! It's uh, I don't know that it's a weird tale. I doubt it, given the magazine. It's in the Smart Set, which is a very interesting weird magazine that does have stuff like Lord Dunsany in it. But uh, this is quite substantially earlier. I, I don't even know if it's 100% the same author. There's no, there's very little trail on Hugh Irish. He wrote one story for Weird Tales. He's only got one listing on ISFDB. It's for the Weird Tales story we just read. Uh, this is, um, um, you know, multiple pages. It's called In the Case of Bradner. But I can tell, I think, just by the opening paragraphs, that it's written by the same guy. I'm going to th- throw it at you and see what you think, if I'm right. Um, so, let me read it here. You, you got yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, I've got it open. Okay. I am a mortal coward in storms. One day, at the, at the time of the Titanic disaster, I said to a friend, I don't know how water danger would affect me. I've always been a landsman and never had much to do with water. But a fair-sized whirlwind picking up the dust and leaves is almost enough to send me into the cellar and under the p- potato bin. I believe one of the ancestors I believe one of my ancestors must have been carried away in a tornado and lived through it. I concluded it's a pity he replied mournfully. There was a strange note of mockery in his voice. What is the emotion what is this emotion called fear that everybody has and yet tries to pretend he has not my dear my dears, it was fear that put the quote unquote man in humanity. I taught our project it taught our progenitors to climb trees, hide among their branches, there to chatter and mutter and brood and develop cunning and mind. Man did not outrun his enemies, he outrun them. Fear, greatest friend that man ever had, yet we despise it above all things. Mm. Don't you think that that's the same author? I mean, it's the same name, it could right? Be. But yeah, I, I, I feel like... This is like the reason Lovecraft's simpatico with this guy's writing is because they're kind of same kind of personality. They're on the same wavelength, yeah. In terms of thinking about the universe, and also with this fear. Yeah, um, this opening line is like the opening of Cool Air and a whole bunch of other stories, right? Yeah, yeah. So I haven't oh, read this. This is one. only it's only nine pages. Yeah, pretty good. I, I mean, I'm interested in reading. I see where it goes. Um, it may not be a weird tale at all, but it's set in Seattle, uh, Spokane area. Um, and uh, we know the guy uh, <laughs> thinking about Saskatchewan and points north. Uh, he's he's yep. all over the place. So uh, there might yeah. be some writing element in here. But uh, wasn't there some writing element? One of the characters, um, wasn't the professor? No, the, the, the new, the, the main... Esty. S.D. Chapman is a writer. Yes. So of what kind, I'm not sure whether he was an academic sort of writer. I or think, I think a, it's a fiction writer, like, like he our was, narrator, is what I was thinking. Yeah. Because he was talking he about was trying to break into deadlines print. and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, 
I suspect that's possible. Um, like Hugh Irish would have been. And uh, yeah. I do have, uh, like I said, I, I've been working hard to try and find more about him because there's basically nothing out there about him. Um, but there's a couple of columns, I think they're columns, in uh, Collier's uh, from mm-hmm. 1913. And uh, they seem to be farm-related. So I, this guy gets about. And Collier's was a pretty high-end magazine, um, as, as was the smart set. It's designed for a, a sort of intellectual audience. Um, the only other thing I have on this story is um, from E.F. Lyler. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned him to you before. Um, he wrote uh, massive guides to supernatural fiction and science fiction. And this is from one or the other. Um, uh, Irish Hugh. No information, as in to the author. Uh, okay. entry, entry number 1164, or maybe that's page number. The Mystery of Silmar. He has it as Silmara, but it's Silmar. Weird Tales, July 1927, headpiece by Hugh Rankin. Short story, Florida. This is just brief notes summarizing. Basically, he's making notes for himself on everything, right? When two young lovers are found in a drifting boat, obvious suicides, their clothing torn and their faces scratched, Professor Morse begins a serious investigation. There has been other similar deaths in the area, reaching back many years. The professor notes the circumstances of the death, theorizes, and explores. And there's a page break. He then explains the deaths were caused by a segment of the vegetable world that has reached a certain degree of consciousness. It projects a mood of depression leading to suicide. To test his theory, the professor finds the right island, locates the plant community that is broadcasting death, and destroys it with burning oil. But unable to recover from the depression that the plant had set up in him, he commits suicide. Uh, so that's fairly accurate plot summary of the of the the core of the story but here's his judgment Mm -hmm. on it overwritten and too many frames yeah (laughs) (laughs) well it's accurate i'm not sure it's overwritten though i think i mean i think there's some character Uh, problems uh i think too many frames for sure overwritten i like frames but i think they're they're the frames are too big individually but I like the yeah. I like the layering and layering because that's the intertextuality that Lovecraft does to make things legitimate in a certain sense. Like if it, if this was put together more like um, the Call of Cthulhu or Dracula or something, where you've got a whole bunch of separate documents coming together, um, it it could have worked better. Whereas I think it's the layering down of stories. Um, so we and we don't love the outer narrator. We don't love the inner narrator we kind of are interested in the girl but she doesn't talk we don't yeah. know anything about the professor other than he's he's the most interesting character in it because we spend a lot of time reading his notes and then uh we got the red men on the far end uh but really the most interesting characters are the trees <laughs> on this yeah. island right so mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure the charge of overwritten works, but I understand why the. T- I I think the instinct to say it's too many frames is right, and I think that's what you said in your ending. Right, you were saying well, something like that. Or, no, no, you were saying that it's a style that's not popular today. That's what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, it, w- it was very like especially some Arthur Conan Doyle stories. Mm-hmm. Um, 
have a similar thing where I've, I've heard other authors, um, there's a fellow whose podcast I like, who's an author called Tony Walker mm-hmm. and he's a narrator. He narrates a lot of, um, uh, classic ghost stories, but cause he's an author, he talks sometimes about if you were writing this today, mm-hmm. how you would write it. And he basically says like this, this framing, um, where it's a person telling you about an experience you would never do today. Cause an editor would just say, um, jump us right into the action. Um, we want it from a person's perspective where it's happening to them. So it's very immediate. Um, and yeah, but see, that like, goes right back to what I was saying at the beginning about these two stories, right? Yeah. We've got the one story that's narrated by a guy who's going to try and stop his wife from being murdered by a guy. <laughs> and we've got another one that's narrated by somebody who's describing everything. And one is immediate and sort of simple. And it's, yeah. and, and it's not starting with the action, right? It, it's like I've been having trouble sleeping. Um, and he talks about the things that happened in the past. And then about halfway through the story, he decides to, you know, stop moping about and go do something about it. Um, but that's, that goes right back to the title. Whereas the other one is, it's, uh, the, it, it, what's the name of the original, uh, the time travel story? It's like um, independ- inevitable. inevitable Conclusion, right? Yeah. Whereas the other one is Run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is all act- is, is the, the action is, it's a description of what happens in the story. Run. And also yep. maybe an, uh, a, a thing you have to do, a command, run, right? Yeah. Um, but the thing is, is looking at the market, saying what an editor wants, editors want to sell expensive series, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, like it, it, become, it becomes a question of what is your ultimate purpose? And what's so cool about Lovecraft? Um, and He doesn't I, care. Okay. That's <laughs> right. That. He, when he writes something... F- for a market, it's it's usually his worst stuff, uh, but I think it's still awesome. Like, mm. so he was asked to write uh, the Lurking Fear after writing uh, Reanimator. I think both are awesome. The things that are clunky about it are the fact that they're serialized, right? Um, yes. Especially the the Reanimator has a lot of you know backfilling, um, mm. which is fine. I, I still love it, but it would probably have been a different structured story uh, had he had he not been, you know, trying to fulfill that market. So uh, the focus on the um, yeah. market tends to distort stories in ways that fuck up the readership. So I was thinking about this story, Mr. Silmer. If you're getting paid by the word, this one's better for the author. It's not better for the reader. <laughs> Yeah, right? he sold uh, it once. He only expected to sell it once. But if you're in, if you're trying to influence uh, reality, right, and write really really good stories, if you have very high ideals for for writing, right, rather than I trying write to a true work of art, and right, then you go for um, you don't compromise. That's what right. The editor would want. And, so, and uh, I put out a question. I want to uh, on Twitter. I did a, like a couple a poll the other day, and I it's like. Who's the more moral, Obama, <laughs> double tap, Obama, um, <laughs> or um, uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber? You know who he is? No? 
<laughs> he's a, he was a, uh, yes, yes. Okay, a, a very interesting. He killed people too, um, but he, he's he's not. He didn't get a Nobel Peace Prize for it. He's in prison, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, or uh, Frank Herbert. <laughs> the thing is, is these things are not the same, right? Yeah. And I, I was like, how can anybody vote for anybody other than Frank Herbert? Who's the moral superior of these three characters, right? These three people. Yes. But we had voters for all three. <laughs> yeah. Mm-mm. Now, the question is, like, what makes, what makes the answer um, logical? What makes – what uh, – it tell so I, I'm – the second poll I put up today is what does it tell – it will tell – what you answer – on this will tell us a lot about you. Um, And the question was, uh, what about, let's see if this brings it up. Yes. Um, And it's sort of related to storytelling. Uh, I think your answer to this question tells us a lot about you. Which would you prefer? Having written a short story or, haha, a novel, and have had it read by a thousand people, or have had a thousand people listen to your words for the time it would have taken to read your story or haha novel. What would you prefer, Connor? You're a bit of a writer and also a guy who does podcasting on YouTube and with me and hopefully a real podcast of your own soon so I can subscribe mm-hmm. to it on my phone. <laughs> Which would you prefer? A thousand readers or a thousand listeners? They're giving their attention to you uh, for the same amount of time, which you would prefer a reader or a listener? Huh. It's a hard question, right? I mean, I prefer one of either, but uh, I don't think... <laughs> okay, well, suppose, if, we, if we change the number slightly, if we put uh, yeah. 500 listeners or 500 readers and 1,000 of the other... Would you prefer readers to listeners? Like, would you prefer one reader to one listener? Because if you wrote a novel, I think, you know, there's a reason you wanted to do that. That, Yes, I I, I would prefer readers because... Why? I think readers uh, more deeply um, are processing the material (laughs) than a listener. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but I, what percentage it, more? So if, if we're trying to make the scales even, right? So uh, if you could have 10,000 listeners and only 100 readers, which would you prefer? So there is some number there I think that we could tease out, right? Um, right now the poll's only got three votes, right? But people prefer readers mm-hmm. to listeners. Um, but I think about this a lot. I don't write uh, things for publication because that's a a mugs game in my view especially mm-hmm. novels it's a mugs game you're really making a mistake because the market's saturated and you will have to distort yourself into all sorts of contortions and you'll be working for very low wages so the reason people are doing it is not because they want to make money that's a lie they are telling themselves they want to be professional writers and have that as their identity right yes Agreed. And you can't yes. have that if you have listeners instead of readers. Um, I don't know. Well, hmm, hmm. This is a this is a this is an interesting thing you're proposing. Um, I don't know that uh, 
I think maybe that's a bit cynical to say that people want <laughs> to write not everybody identity. Oh Certainly yes, so so do. many do. So many, so yeah, many yeah. people are desperate to well, pay uh, money to get into be able to call themselves a professional writer, to have a book sure. on the shelf and look at it and say that's my book, and then having people come over to the house and look at the book and say, "Did you read all this?" No, and they tap their chest as they puff it out. I wrote this one. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know how I know this? Because I can see it in myself. Yeah, uh, I uh, and I see it totally. in other people. Um, there's an element of uh, of vanity to it. Yes, um, but identity. You see, right? They love reading. Yeah. They have always thought that it would be cool to do that, right? But they're willing to make compromises to get it. Sure. Um, but and but what you're saying is also that so for instance someone wrote this book, they recorded an audiobook of it. Yes. Um, and uh, then how like what if if on our scale where we have readers on one side and listeners on the other side, where how many listeners balance out to how many readers? Right. And um. Because yeah, because uh, my podcast gets thousands of downloads, right? Thousands sure. of downloads. Uh, the other one uh, gets like hundreds. I, I last time I checked, it was hundreds, not thousands. Uh, but over time, uh, old episodes get listened to, and I'm like, that's amazing, right? I, I, I've done the calculation; it's millions of downloads, and that's amazing. Mm. But it doesn't feel amazing because there's not millions of copies of my book out in the universe, right? And it's because we yeah. don't respect the medium of, of, of uh, podcasting in the way we respect the medium of books or movies or TV shows, right? And so, like, you see it in the media all the time. Like, people are angry at Joe Rogan because he, he's taking attention away from them, right? <laughs> like, mm. his numbers are incredible, right? Well, certainly journalists. Um, yes, yes, because... Would, would be... Yeah, I mean, they they literally go out of their way to. Uh, there's a video of what they they showed him uh, when they announced it on CNN. He got uh, COVID, and they put out his oh, Instagram. <laughs> oh yeah, he got COVID. They got his Instagram uh, video that they put up, and they put a yellow filter over him to make him look sick. Oh, <laughs> yeah! It's like they gotta say it. <laughs> they got yeah, yeah. to get their dignity back. Yeah. But, but uh, listen to this, Connor. This podcast gets more downloads than there are listeners on CNN sometimes. Yeah. That's insane. But, and yet sure. there's I mean, no respect from that group because of that, uh, this kind of uh, this breakage. And the thing is, is I agree with you. Sometimes reading for yourself on the page is more uh gives you more attention than listening right listening is automatic mm. but there is some relationship between uh giving getting your time between people and most people don't read that's the real yes. truth right so who are the who are you deluding when you think you know i'm gonna make the greatest novel and i'm gonna be jk rowling <laughs> You're deluding yourself, right? There's six, seven billion people in the world. How many J.K. Rawlings are there? There's four, five, six. If we yeah. include the Chinese market, maybe there's 30. I don't know. 
but you still do the math on that and it's not a good number not it's not it's not likely so i don't know i don't know uh what hugh irish did for a living i doubt it was full-time writer given how little i've found of him but um I'm not sure. I'm not sure that this story is better because it was longer and earned him more money for weirdness. I think it did the other, and and over time, the, there's sort of a purity that comes out. Right? We mm-hmm. sort of know a winnowing over time whose whose work is going to last in a certain sense, mm. and it isn't just who because you know H.G. Wells's um, biggest stuff isn't you know his most recent to art period. Right when the world the world set free and stuff like that's not huge in the same or the food of the gods, it's sort of a second you know tier of his stuff. And yeah. how do, how do we know what makes something wonderful? What makes something a really good story or an important story? So I don't think the mystery of Silmare is quite there, but I can see why H.P. Lovecraft liked it. Liked it. Not, it's it's I think the same reason I like it. Uh, yeah, probably for you too. The mystery of Silmer is um, like uh, okay, so there are in 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 films there's there's B films mm-hmm. I think they're called, mm-hmm. and uh, there are some B films that I just love. Yeah, right, absolutely. Um, and like like I was telling you, I watched um, the Spirits of the Dead. Right, the, that's uh, a trilogy of Edgar Allan Poe stories. Yeah, and so. Um, that film, right? So it's got three parts. I watched uh, the William Wilson section and then another section, which I think was called Don't okay. Bet Your Head on the Devil. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Same. It's a story I'm not familiar with. I haven't read it. But, um, okay, the first two sections, they're not going to change film. They are just, uh, they're, um, like, they're not the greatest film. I probably very few people have seen this film these days mm-hmm. or people my, my age. Right. But, um, uh, if you were around in the sixties when it came out, you maybe saw it, but, uh, uh, but this is a, um, you probably wouldn't call it a big film, but it is a damn good film, especially those first two, um, sections, mm-hmm. I think are really well done. Uh, and, um, and that to me, it's like, I watched it and I super enjoyed this film and I'm probably going to remember it. Um, but it's uh, it's not gonna. It didn't make the grade as like one of the greatest films ever made. It's not in the canon. Yeah, and and this is where Silmar is for me. It's mm-hmm. like it's good. I probably won't forget it. I enjoyed reading it, and I'm glad I'm you know recorded it. Um, but uh, it probably won't be in any of like the best of weird fiction. Although maybe it does deserve to be in that. It but, deserves um, more status than it has for sure. Because yeah, I, I definitely it just totally was under the radar. Never, I thought I, I thought the name sounded familiar, but it's obviously not a very common name. Like if you type in Hugh Irish and you start digging around, there's a lot of Irish and Hughes, but not a Hugh Irish. And mm. uh, you put those quotation marks around it. You start looking Google Google on archive.org books sections, and it just not it's not there a lot. But the thing is, Connor, this is a, the most amazing thing. Is Right now is the best time ever in the history of the human species to be a person digging into the past because everything's oh, yeah. getting scanned. And it's hard to get yeah. access to these things. But 
it's never been easier. Never yeah. been easier. And the fact that it's, I could dig up this this uh, magazine and get that other story, or you know, even just get a hold of Weird Tales and share it with somebody on another continent, very such, difficult. Yeah, search engines are fucking wizardry when you think Pretty about amazing. it. Pretty amazing. Like, I think about how much like I enjoy researching and looking at stuff, mm-hmm. and then think about if if you were around in like the forties or whatever, and you were or or earlier and it's like you want to look up information like not only do you have you... to call people up on the phone find the phone yeah. number write them a letter it, it, you can do all those things today but they're like almost mm. instant right i can t- i can well, tweet yeah. somebody i can i can do and the, the the cost is almost zero the people who are able to do this in the past tended to have to be independently wealthy or you know have a job that pays them enough and and you know allow them to do it they're kind of like the flakes in this story right it, it took a lot of time to find information right and yes it, it was it was sort of like if you want to find something you either need to well if you have a library that has access to you it, have to write hp lovecraft and ask him a bunch of questions and then he'll send yeah. you a list of books to read to yeah, ask for yeah, at the exactly. library um and, and, and at, and at, I, the, at that time that was the equivalent yep. of our uh, awe at the ability to do this, right? Because there's libraries springing up all over because of Carnegie and, you know, his estate saying, ah, oh, I, I really fucked things up with my uh, domineering <laughs> in the 19th century. I got to make up or I'm going to hell. So mm. <laughs> build libraries everywhere. <laughs> and the way that deal worked was like 50, uh, city has to pay 50% of the costs and then Carnegie will pay the other half. You put up half, I'll, I'll build you a library. Mm. And it's like, well, that allows uh, even poor bastards with almost no money, like H.P. Lovecraft, to get those research and also be born into a household that has a giant library that he can spend his youth in, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it was a, a rare thing, valuable. Right. And I, um, I think uh, we, we need to enjoy exactly how valuable that is. And, and that isn't uh, best done by uh, talking about the latest movie all the time. Read a book, goddammit, or have one narrated to you by uh, some Australian guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, don't watch the movie Dune. Read the book, Dune. Yeah, read the. Read, you can watch the movie Dune, and then Why? we'll, we'll yeah. go read the book. Yeah, no, like I, I love a good movie adaptation. Uh, I'm not against them at all, but no. I, I always think like it was a book before it was a movie, and that is the, that's the, that's the story. It's mm-hmm. not Dune's not a film. It's a, it's a book. Yeah, and uh, and even though you can enjoy the film, it's like, um, yeah, read the book. How do you think the speaking of which, how do you think this would adapt as a film? Um, there's other stuff, like for example, the canal, uh, which is mm. I, I think a really good second tier story um, from Weird Tales by Everell Worrell. She was a big Lovecraft fan. Um, mm. and uh, I don't think the adaptation works that well. I think the story works much better. But here, there's a lot of problems with the storytelling in an ad- adapting it to a you know, 45 minute or hour long or two hour movie. I guess it wouldn't be a two hour movie um, or an audio drama or whatever. What, what would, 
how would you fix it? How would you make it more compelling? For a film? Yeah. Um, okay, so it's funny you said that because mm -hmm. I immediately thought, well, what other films have done a similar idea mm -hmm. or concept and have worked? And two come to mind. Mm -hmm. um, one of them was a really recent one called In the Earth from, like, from this year, mm -hmm. actually. It's a folk horror film. And it's a very similar concept where some ecologists or some sort of biologists go into the woods, they're researching, and what they discover is that the trees react um, and actually give off really minute um, audio sounds. Hmm. And right, and so, and they set up a bunch of microphones and they start. Um, it's like the stone tapes, but in the wood. Yeah, well, the other story I was going to bring up was the stone tape. Oh, okay. Tapes, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but this one, I think, is in t terms of how it portrays, because this forest influences people um, and is kind of communicating with them in some weird way. And the implication is, is a similar one to, to this story. Um, and, uh, I think that film was uh, well done. I've, I, it wasn't quite up. I would have liked it to been to have been a bit better, um, but it was a pretty well made film, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, and the other one, so one way to make this film would be in a similar way to, uh, one way to make Silmer into a film would be similar to In the Earth, I think, mm -hmm. but also maybe similar to the stone tapes where there is an action. Um, you need to be able to show the psychological effects on people that this Island is mm -hmm. producing because that is the source of the horror. You get rid and of the book immediately and turn it into something a lot more like, uh, oh, what's uh, running around the forest with a handy cam. What's that movie called? <laughs> the witches the Blair Witch Blair Witch, the Blair Witch there you go yes yeah, yeah you would um, I think you'd have to do it um, uh, something similar you can't like, have a um, book books don't work I, I love to see books in movies but they don't you know you know you, you could have um, there's often an exposition scene right like in the Wicker Man or something you know they go to the library and they oh they research some stuff and there's a voiceover and you could maybe do that. There's a bit of that in in the Earth as mm -hmm. well, this ancient book. Um, and you can have that, but that's got to be like two, like a one scene for one minute maximum, right? And just and do that and just get it out of the way if you want a little bit of exposition or backstory. Um, but uh, the th the thing is that um, I think this this kind of psychological stuff works really well in books because you can be in the mind of the narrator or the character and mm -hmm. see how their thoughts um, are being influenced or they can describe it to you with films. That's just a bugger of a thing to show. Mm -hmm. Like you've got to, unless you have a narrator or a, a voiceover or somebody explaining this to mm -hmm. the camera, it's just hard to do. Mm -hmm. And so like in the earth, uses a lot of like cool new flashy effects to kind of show the um the distress and the mental uh sort of angst um or perturbation of the characters mm -hmm. 
but in my opinion, it's it's always secondary to how well you can write it as mm-hmm. a story. Mm-hmm. It can al- can always be written better than it can be shown on a film. I, I so I I don't I don't even you know I don't really I I'd, I'd be interested to watch the adapt an adaptation of this story, but really what I want is somebody to have the kind of idea that this story has and write it. I'm just going right back to that that 500 word time travel story. The idea is what drives that story is to be a good story, even if it's sort of clunky and familiar. Whereas the mm. other one, it's just writing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just yes, yeah. it's just writing because there's there is no payoff. There is no idea behind it. It's just a visceral scene. And yeah, I I can forgive so much, and that's why I, I like this story. I forgive so much of the non-action, um, because and you know it, it's a it is a little bit confusing. Um, given how how many layers of outer narrator there are that are not, you know, distinct personalities. But, yeah. but it's got a strong core. It has a really strong core, and that core is an idea. Mm. It's it's it, it's not like here's some spooky woods and they're spooky, but here's some spooky woods and this is what's going on. This is why yeah. these woods are haunted, right? What makes, uh, or even uh, that's not even the right word for it. This is why these woods have that effect, and uh, uh, I'll I'll take a thousand of those over one one pretty sentence that doesn't lead anywhere. Yeah, any any day of the week. Any day of the week. Yeah, um, this reminded me uh, that story or the difference between like an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and a strong core, and then just writing. I've been reading this author, Laird Barron. I think yeah, his name I is. heard of him. Yeah, and um, I've been reading a collection of his short stories. And uh, maybe I'll change my opinion because I had very high expectations because I know that he's highly regarded. I'd heard of that. Um, but a lot of his stories, I feel like, are a bit like Run, in that mm. they don't have that strong core concept. Um, where w- with a their, their structure isn't oh um, your audio just started playing <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> oh okay um yeah this is, this, i'm just getting out my punch at lead baron <laughs> <laughs> no, that, um, no uh, i think he's a, re- he's a really up. good writer and um i've uh and i've read i'm keen to read more of his stories i'm going to finish the book but i just feel like they are they don't have that core defined concept that I think they would improve, like uh, they would improve them. Uh, it's not they so much, like a, I, but see, I'm, what I'm saying is like, of the two stories there, one is a, a super polished sentence by sentence yeah. and not worth reading. The other one is worth reading and I would even take it even less polished than that mm. <laughs> because it's it had an idea rather than a feeling. And what's so interesting is Lovecraft is always saying it's all about mood. Right, but that mood is caused by the idea, in a sense. Yes. Right. So, what if my ancestors are fishmen? That'd be bad. How would I feel about that? Right. So, getting mm. us into that mood is is like 
even when the reaction, like uh, my favorite is the white ape, AKA Arthur facts in the case concerning Arthur German, right? If I was Mm -hmm. Arthur German, I'd be like, my grandma was a a gorilla. This is the best news ever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I don't know if this means I can swing from tree to tree, but when I go to Africa, I'm going to be hanging out with my family. (laughs) Yeah. Whereas him, it's the most horrible thing ever. And the effect at the end for me is like laughter. Uh, whereas I think mm. the, the intended effect for Lovecraft is, is kind of horror, but also <laughs> kind of like, isn't this hilarious? Um, mm. I, and I think that that's that sense of humor is it's kind of a reaction to an idea, right? You think, mm. oh, that's, that's, that's rich. That's really rich. As opposed to, like, I mean, and I teach this all the time, is how to make your sentences look and smell nice, you know? (laughs) Not just Mm -hmm. the grammar, but the flow and the poetic beauty of them. But without a central, like, core idea, like, how many characters are in this story? Reduce it by one. What does that do to the story? Well, it makes it more complex. Make the story title a key to unlocking the mystery that is the story. That'll make it more complex, right? Mm. And and that engagement, intellectual engagement, I think is the only thing that can possibly make people, well, I guess I'm wrong, um, want to read. <laughs> because some people want to read long series books. I guess, it, but that's an escape, I think. They're reading, they're reading mm. for different reasons, right? They're reading, uh, you know, there's some people read for, you know, how to fix problems with their computer. Um, they don't care who the author is. They only care that it's clear, right? Yep. But uh, when you're reading for fiction, I think it's it can, it can either be as an escape or it can be for like a kind of intellectual engagement. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, sure, sure you can. Uh, I mean, I get the appeal of fun characters. But I think it's it's like confusing the actor with the character in a certain sense. When you're, it's like when you're watching a movie, you say, "Oh, I like that actor. I'll go see that movie." My thing is, is some actors have really good senses of what will be a good movie for them to be in, and other ones like they just go into anything, right? <laughs> like they'll take any work that's provided to them. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know, Nicolas Cage is is compelling on screen, uh, but. He's indiscriminate when it comes to what movie he's in, right? So when yes, he's in the yeah. right kind of movie, uh, he's great on screen, and I want to see him. But I noticed Steve Buscemi chooses better movies for his role in those movies. Yeah, he's like his brain works better when it comes to like, oh, what kind of film should would be a good movie for me? Yeah. Or, or um, you know, his agent or something is good at that. Somebody's good at putting him in the right kind of movies. Because that, that'll sell me a lot more than seeing, you know, any random Nicolas Cage movie. You tell me. <laughs> and I like Nicolas Cage, right? It's just that mm. he's, he's, I don't think he's engaging intellectually with the material as much as Steve Buscemi. It seems to be. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think I watched a really good Nick Cage film recently. Was it called, the uh, Lovecraft one? P- uh, no, but I have seen that as well, which how, I think was, was also the Lovecraft one. Yeah, the uh, Color Out of Space. I haven't seen uh, it. Good. I thought it was a good adaptation. I think uh, it changes a few things, but essentially remains pretty faithful to the story. Cool. And uh, 
I think like Nick Cage is good in it. Overall, I thought it was uh, like, I don't think there's very many good Lovecraft adaptations, but I think this is probably one of the best. Okay. In the sense that it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, it wasn't afraid to deviate a little bit where it needed to for the film to work. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a framing device, um, like it adds some characters. Uh, so uh, and, but yeah, it's good. Um, uh, but I don't think I don't know whether that was a film Nick Cage was intellectually. I don't know. Um, I think he's doing a good role, but he's um, but it's not like. Uh, he he's not bad at all. Is is what I would would say. He's putting in a really good uh, performance as an actor, and that's all that the film requires of him mm-hmm. for that role. Um, I watched one recently called uh, Pig, which is a really recent film that mm-hmm. Nick Cage uh, did, and he was uh, uh, awesome in it, like fantastic. Um, I think it's probably partly the di- the director knew how to. Um, utilize him to, yeah direct him mm-hmm. and knew what to play off because he is stereotyped as a certain kind of actor and they and they um and they played with your expectations of that mm-hmm. um yeah but we're way off topic now <laughs> no i i think it's related um, because uh, like what uh, i don't go to see a lot of movies right like i obviously none yeah. right now um i'm not signing up for a whole bunch of <laughs> things that give me permission to spend money. I'll just like, I don't care that much. Um, but uh, the things that drew me into the movie theater is like, uh, who wrote it? And is this the kind of person who also makes the film happen? Like, uh, David Mamet, I go see a David Mamet movie. Um, it's not always the best movie, but it's definitely stamped David Mamet. And that means there's going to be a certain level of interest held even if i don't engage with it the way i hoped i would um but if you say you know there's a new james bond movie that's a character based sort of adventure style of cinema and i get burned by that right i you know sometimes they're okay and sometimes they're not um or you know you cast uh, i always want to see movies with x actor right uh you get burned by that too <laughs> Right. So mm-hmm. what makes a story worth worth telling? And I think it, it is like the trust you put in whether the author did the work or not. And so a lot of movies mm. that sort of work poorly, I think, is because they're based on this formula of trying to film, you know, like that's why that um, the one you were talking about, Spirits of the Dead, works is because those are Poe stories. Poe knows what he's doing. Mm. So if the author, mm-hmm. or the people adapting it don't know what they're doing, um, it can fail, and that happens. Um, but at least there was something in the beginning. Whereas a lot of stuff, it's just like I want to be in a movie, or I want to have watched, a, I want to have made a movie, right? Or I wanted to do a movie like this other movie. Yep. And and so I, I don't know anything about Pig, but uh, if you say it's got something. That sounds like a good thing because we're sim- simpatico, at least on the sense of of um, thinking it, it's impo- story is important in a way that uh, mm. the surface of things maybe is not. Yep. Yeah. Uh, budget. What do you think? Uh, 
does budget matter that much? Because uh, one of my favorite movies, <laughs> I say a favorite, it's, I have many favorites. So a movie that really surprised me was shot on videotape. It's uh, called, Hey, Stop Stabbing Me. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> oh, it's a really funny let me, movie. Um, let me check this out. Hey, uh, hey stop comma, me. stop stabbing me. Or maybe it's, hey, exclamation mark, stop stabbing me. And it's, you know, all amateur actors and... It's it's just a comedy filmed on you know somebody's backyard and um but mm. there's a kind of like um train effect like it 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 knows exactly what's tr- it's trying to do and doesn't care the fact that you know it doesn't have a budget for anything mm. <laughs> but it's willing to make these really dumb jokes because that's the it really likes that kind of humor and uh, I'm down for anything that you know really knows what it's doing and wants to do that thing. And if if I if I like getting into Russian movies is really hard, but once you get it, you're good. It's like movies with subtitles. Mm. At a certain age you can't do movies with subtitles cuz, you know, you're just not old enough. At a certain age you can't watch anything except for cartoons because you're just not old enough. So mm. there is some there is some training up and some skill levels required. Um and I feel like uh we should invest more time in getting those that training happening so we can enjoy some soviet movies and uh you know kuros mm. if you if you if you go your whole life and don't watch a akira kurosawa movie i think you've made a fundamental life error because sure. this guy is so compelling that it's fundamental to human beings who are who have eyes <laughs> and ears yeah who have no clue about the culture. Uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, they're just super amazing films, yeah. and uh, the they're like that back after back after back. Striking images, good. You know, yeah. I, I like the actors, but it's not really the actors, right? It's the guy whose vision it is to put this on screen and tell this story. Yep, you agreed. need to see um, an Akira Kurosawa movie, and if you if you're not able to do it yet. We need to find yeah. the way to train you up to do that. That's what should, school should be about, is getting kids able to watch Akira Kurosawa movies, is my view. <laughs> mm. Forget this math class. Kids, we're yeah. going to learn Japanese film. I know it's hard. Doesn't uh, the, the Woman of the Sands, didn't you do that one or talk about that one? The Woman of the Sands? No. Uh, no, I don't so, think so. Um, somebody was talking about it on a podcast. Um Oh, I think it was uh, Scott and Julie. They really like foreign films. The one of the Sands is uh, uh, a 1964 Japanese movie um, oh. based on a novel. It's, uh, they're calling it New Wave Japanese Cinema. It's v- you you will like it. I'm pretty sure, if not, love okay. It. Um, has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It says we'll see. Um, but basically, oh, wow. it's it's not a normal movie. Uh, it's more like a fabulous, um, fantasy, like the Philokatic style fantasy, but it's alien because it comes from a Japanese culture as opposed to, Mm. you know, uh, Hansel and Gretel uh, or Little Red Riding Hood or something like that. And it's a film, so you can watch it and appreciate it, but it's hard to do unless you are able to sustain the interest in reading subtitles or learn Japanese. Mm. Nah, you want to read the subtitles. <laughs> I think that's probably uh, the easier way to go because there's also Russian films and uh, yeah. Polish. You, can, and... you can't learn every language. No, no, no. Uh, so um, you, you said initially uh, 
we might have to wrap up soon, by the way. Yeah, but, I figure. I figure we're um, done. Uh, but does budget matter in film? Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of like, you know how they say um, uh, money makes you happy, but only up to a certain point. Right. Like, like what you want is to be able to take care of everything and have a little bit more. Um, that's the same with film, right? What right. you need is the bare minimum to really be able to make everything work as a film in terms of lighting and the camera and mm-hmm. and uh, actors and so forth. And then you maybe need a little bit more to make it flashy or just a little bit. but Or to hire need... that that cinematographer that you need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, or the um, composer like, to make the, the music work. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, like uh, I watched a film recently um, – what was it called? Damn. Uh, Hex, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a folk horror film. Really cool premise for a film set in like the uh, 1600s in England. Two soldiers from opposing armies um, wind up in stuck in this wood together, mm-hmm. right? And they're kind of hunting each other, like they're enemies and they want to kill each other mm-hmm. after this battle. And then there's also, at the same time, some supernatural witch uh, witchcraft stuff going on in this wood, um, and uh, super like mega low budget film, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and I could tell that uh, I the film was okay. Uh, it wasn't fantastic, but I think the fact that it had a low budget um, probably hurt it a lot. Yes. Because I think uh, this is the kind of film where they probably filmed it in several days mm-hmm. when all the actors were free because they probably all have jobs. Um, and they just filmed it in the woods um, just because uh, you can film there for right. free. <laughs> mm-hmm. And no, there's no set. Um, but this is a horror film. You would want it. You want it to be like overcast, you know, mm-hmm. sort of dark, which is hard to film. Uh, this film was set in like full sunlight. Right. <laughs> like it was like a beautiful summer day. Right. Which is amazing if for uh, for some kinds of films. But I think it was obvious to me that they had certain, they had a few days to film mm-hmm. and they couldn't reschedule just because the weather was too nice. Right. They couldn't reschedule. But how, much, when did, it was, how much did that hurt it? So like – a lot yes, but but would it have uh, would the ideas have been 10,000 times more compelling had they been able to make them the lighting right so uh, the the story that reminded me of at first until you mentioned the witch is yeah. um there I'm trying to remember the name of the author but basically there's two hunters hunting in the woods um one is hunting the other uh they have a dispute over land in the mountains of uh, Carpathia or whatever and uh, there's a windstorm and one they both dismiss their servants who are getting nervous um, and uh, a tree falls and knocks them both to the ground um, and they're both pinned under the tree you know this story? No, it sounds um, awesome though. It is awesome <laughs> um, and um, they argue back and forth about whose land it is and blah 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 um, and it's a very short story. Um, and at the end of it, uh, they basically are inviting each other over to each other's houses and they're going to be blood brothers and everything's settled, right? Um, 
uh, oh, yeah, I remember the name. It's the interlopers. And then the interlopers. Yes, and then the interlopers appear, and they think it's the uh, servants come to find them. Uh-oh. And it's wolves. Oh no! That's <laughs> the end of the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, of oh, course, okay. the implication uh, in the way it's written is that it's God, right? They're 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 um, they're uh, calling upon you know who's the more moral here and blah blah blah. Um, and they agree, you know, that it was all a mistake and God's mercy, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, we hear the guys coming. We're going to be saved. God's mercy, blah, blah, blah. And it is God intervening <laughs> in the mm. sense of sending these guys to be killed by the forest's true hunters and true owners. Um, so that story doesn't require much of a budget, right? Um, you could improve that uh, story by having a really good cinematographer and music but the length of that story making it longer won't make it a better story just having enough right as you mm. I, I really like your answer by the way um mm. uh, the, enough is always the right amount <laughs> not too much a little bit yep. a little more than enough but not so little that you it's going to hurt you in some way and that's exactly right that's exactly the right only i didn't even know that that was the correct answer i just was curious but you've given mm. me some wisdom there. That is exactly the right answer. Yeah. I think we're done. Yep. Yeah. Long show. Sounds like it. Good I good was one. surprised. I had a couple of points mm-hmm. that I wanted to bring up and I didn't know how Did you uh, get it? Much. But uh yeah, but there's a lot in this story. There is. Uh, it's because yeah. it's got ideas, right? It's got it's got um a setting it's got some ideas and it delivers but it's it's a bit of a and it's not even that bad i've read way worse oh yeah yeah way, yeah way i worse. think w- once you start analyzing stuff it's easy to be too negative because you are criticizing things but with that being said like um like even films that that don't work, or sorry, stories that don't work, mm-hmm. I still think uh, often I'm like, you know what? I'm not. I don't regret reading it at all. Not if you it learn still, something from it. Not if you come away yeah. with something from it, right? Yeah, Absolutely. and I think like uh, that's like you know when you're analyzing and you're like you criticize a little bit or whatever, it's uh, it, you. It gives you the impression that you that you didn't enjoy it, whereas um, like like. This I one, don't think Laird though... Barron's going to be listening to the podcast, so you're safe. And even if he does, uh, yeah. um, he's a big oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> he can pull up his big boy yes. pants. He's sure. <laughs> he's made some some money off of it. He can console himself with that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> but, the yeah. More, uh, but the thing is, is you need to be true when you're talking about this stuff because it's your thinking. If you're lying to yourself, it's, it's kind of psych- sick psychological um, problem. About you know whether something's good or not, because you got to be honest. You have sure. to, otherwise you you put yourself in the wrong headspace, and you're like, why am I depressed all the time? It's because the media you're consuming fucking sucks, and you're not thinking about that. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.
So I I'll... sent I sent you this link to the uh, the two stories. I was thinking maybe you could read the first one. I'll read the second one. Sure. It's just uh, I really like the the technique where you you come at things instead of like. So I hear you wrote a book. <laughs> I hate those. Yeah. Oh my god. The, hey, d- hey, Bob. I am a person. Are you a person? <laughs> yes, yep. I am, John. <laughs> uh, come at it from a weird angle. Um, have a strong opinion, and also don't make mistakes. But don't just not make mistakes. You gotta, mm. you gotta be enter- entertaining and interesting. Otherwise, it's, uh, uh, it's like I don't know. It's what works for me. Yeah. All right. So no, um, I agree. Um, I, you should be able to cl- uh, if you click through. Yours is on over two photo photos. Just left. You see them there. The creature she knew was there, but it says at the top. But actually, I think that's a quote from the story, sort of. Yep. It's called "Run." By Got it. No- okay. And then, and then the, it goes on to the second page there and ends with a messy splatter of crimson horror remained. And then the yep. next, uh, there's a couple tweets later, and then I've got the one that's all on one page. I'll, I'll read that one, because I, I think I'm better at reading stuff that's simple, <laughs> rather than, I'm not a very good yep. narrator. But I've read this one before, so I should be able to do it. All right, you ready? Sure. So. Here we go. Uh, 